This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Beach Volleyball National Events. BVNE, Beach Volleyball National Events, is the greatest get noticed showcase in the United States of America. We're in Florida, we're in Texas, we're in Colorado, we're in California. We are everywhere. And if you want your kid to get noticed, tell your mother, tell your father, send a telegram, get with your club team. We have as many as 22 to 25 recruiters from LSU, FSU, USC, UCLA, anything that starts and ends with a U, they're out there. Stein Metzger, Dane Blanton, BVNE, come play with us. It's also brought to you by NY Varsity Sports. That's me, that's me, the NYV. Watching me, watching you. This is episode 53. I got the savage Rachel Cara Perez, and the episode starts right now. Okay, people, this is episode 43, the Option Podcast, and we've been talking about her, and now she's here because me, I've got to give the people... I'll give the people what they want. Rachel, Cara, Perez, what's good? Hi. Hey, how are you? It's so good to be here. It's so good to see your face. Oh, man, it is. Um, so for those of you that are that need to educate yourself before you watch this podcast, Rachel Cara Perez is a theater performer. She's a film actress. She's an artist. She's a singer. She's a savage. Um, from my part, uh, one of the, one of the most, I'm a prisoner of the moment. I, I would say the most talented person I've ever met in my life. Um, oh, pr- yeah. probably not true, but I'm, 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 I'm a prisoner of the moment and my bias because you're here, um, allows me to easily and lazily say that. But, but, um, from the moment I met you in college, we, we both went to Marymount Manhattan College, which mm-hmm. at the time was ranked number two in the nation in theater performance. There was Juilliard and there was us. And, oh, um, wow. and here we are. So let's, let's um, this is where I get, I get to shut up a little bit and we get to talk about what, um, what projects you've been up to. Talk to me about, um, I believe it's called Convicted. No, 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 no. Yeah. Oh, that was a play from a couple of years ago. Talk to me about that. I, I I did I did a little research and mm-hmm. basically it's about I think a kid who was trying to get away from what seemed like de facto conversion therapy, right? Trying to escape Arizona and move to New York because he um mm-hmm. he realized um how he was born. I should put it that way. Yeah, um, and it was actually written by a friend of mine, uh, Riley Thomas, and in it I play a detective trying to figure out you know, what's like, um, like just kind of like everything that was, that was going on. And it was, it was an interesting, um, festival as part of, I think it was bound for Broadway festival, the inaugural year of this, um, particular initiative. Uh, and I played a detective that I also decided was, was gay, but it was an interesting, um, take because this particular detective was in some ways conservative socially. Okay. So not as, as, as like open and out there and, and accepting as like other characters or even myself. <laughs> um, but it was a really cool experience. And um, I've worked with Riley Thomas on a number of, uh, he's also a really wonderful composer and musical theater um, writer. And this was a straight play that, that he had created that I got to be a part of. So that was really cool. Yeah. Okay. What was your character? Yeah. 
Um, so I was a detective, and um, wow, I haven't even thought about this play in a while. My God, it feels so long ago. But um, I was trying to. I'm on stage for the entire time, which is very interesting. I don't even speak as much as some of the other characters, and I'm trying to replay everything that's going on. There's some type of inappropriate relationship happening between someone who calls into a, a hotline for like queer youth and a social worker who gets a little too close to someone who um, is is uh, working there. So there's someone that's working there that was a formerly uh, uh, convicted you know, criminal who then is volunteering and uh, then befriends a young person that's escaping their, you know, their, their town and coming to New York. And there's a lot of allegations and, and issues around that just in terms of like what type of, uh, what's an appropriate relationship for an adult and a minor to have, especially within the context of like you're working for this social services organization and then you're, you're maintaining like personal relationships and contact with a runaway essentially. And so um, I, as a detective, I'm trying to track everybody down and it's, it's, the majority of the play happens in a flashback and it's presented as me at my desk very often in a corner um, kind of reviewing the facts. So if it were a film, it would almost be like a montage, but on stage in the theater setting, it was, it's, uh, it's a little interesting because it kind of blurs the lines of what's present and what's the past. And in traditional theater, we don't often see that. Um, and in film, I think it's something that's a little easier to portray. But in the theater, it was really cool yeah. to be able to do that live. And then sometimes I would like jump into the scene and jump out. And <laughs> yeah, but it's very Brechtian in the sense that it's bare bones, right? Yeah. You're not trying to um, yes, fool the audience very. into some kind of mirage or some some kind of um, image. Uh, yeah. where the where the image is a spoon fed to you the audience has to see the see the bare bones set up and like you said mm -hmm. um intellectually and and emotionally tickle themselves on that one and that that's yeah yeah um that's one of the things i liked about it i'm you know i'm a very big brecht guy i think um um, a lot of fucking a that we did um, was was somewhat, but it was more absurdism. Yes. It was more absurdism than Brechtian in, in a sense that every at the at the beginning and the end of Act One and Act Two, you were kind of like back where you started from, but with a slightly worsening condition. And mm -hmm. if anyone that's ever you know read any Ionescu play or or, or um, um, who's the guy that did Godot again? Um, who's waiting for Godot again? Oh right. Um can't even remember right <laughs> no, of course my brain my brain goes blank when your yeah. brain goes blank i'm like what names uh, five? Beckett. When this one is five beckett all right <laughs> exactly. so so consistent with a lot of those plays that are theater of the absurd that's what i thought fucking a was but this this wasn't this was yeah. more this is definitely uh uh like a bare bones approach and i really liked that it was about the natural man because if you look at any profession you're in rachel your one's biggest strength and their biggest weakness is the same thing. And in this play, just like many professions, uh, personalizing your work is your strength. Mm. Like you um, become emotionally invested in this kid. You care more. Guess what? You're going to work harder. But at the same yeah. time, you're emotionally invested into this kid. You're too you're too close to the tr uh, the forest to see the trees. You you know, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and you and the thing I liked about this play and, and and at least and the concept I didn't get a chance to see to uh, wholly examine it. But my but my first take was um, wow, 
I can apply this to volleyball. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm interviewing for a job. What's your biggest strength, Jason? I personalize my work. <laughs> it doesn't just, when I leave the court, my, it doesn't, you know, I live in a video room and, and like a hermit. I set up an office in my house just for volleyball, you know? Um, right. So what's your yeah. biggest weakness? <laughs> I personalize my work. I personalize my you know, work. When all things, my work. Every, all the yeah. shit I do is so fucking personal. Yeah. Well, here, right? Well, here's the thing. When things don't go your way, when things don't go your way, it fucking hurts. It hurts. Oh, yeah. Sometimes it hurts too much. And sometimes you need, when your passion becomes your career or when you're a... And yeah. in volleyball's case, when your escapism becomes your career, like a lot of people play volleyball because mm -hmm. it's a world away from their world. You've, you've been the central part, right? right? right. So, but um, when yeah. it becomes your career, um, mm -hmm. you need another form of escapism or it will eventually, the resentment or the betrayal, however unfounded or not, um, mm -hmm. can consume you, consume you, can eat you alive. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely feel that. Yeah. <laughs> So what was the the most recent one you've done, either last year or this year? In terms of performance? Um, in terms of any 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 artistic project. Because uh, I know you were on Bronx oh, yeah. Net and you were doing some things. Um, I saw some poetry. Yeah. Uh, um, it's like everywhere I looked, there you were. So, <laughs> um, so most recently I did a performance, a virtual performance for the Dixon Place Theater. It was like the final end of, it was the, it was the last um, shit offering of their summer programming. Um, and it was uh, an extension and an expansion of what I shared on BronxNet. So I was on BronxNet in January, at the beginning of the year, doing like a three minute kind of excerpt of a one person show that I'm currently developing. And so um, I, I applied to Dixon Theater uh, for a, a festival. And at the time I was out of the country when they wanted to book me, but then I was contacted by them and they said, we still want you to perform because even if it's outside of this festival. So because of COVID, it got pushed back and pushed back and pushed back. So I just like in the beginning of August, I did this virtual performance of, of it was about half an hour of the, the work in progress of this one person show, um, which I've entitled Echoes. And it is... Um, it's a little layered. It's interdisciplinary, and it's an exploration of queer identity, of black identity, and Latinidad, as it were, or Latinx identity, through a transracial adoptee lens. And for anyone who's unfamiliar, in the terms of um, within the adoption community, if you're what is called a transracial adoptee, you're a person who is adopted by people who have a different racial background than you do. Um, and that like being an adoptee has, which, and I'm adopted, um, but being an adoptee has like many different la layers that affect your identity. And I have personally found that like being queer, being black and by black, I mean, African-American and also being, you know, a Latinx person, I feel like the identity and the exploration that, um, that I undergo within all of those realms is like further compounded and complicated by also being an adoptee that doesn't share all of the same identities as the people who raised me. And that's like very long. It's like so many words and so many layers. Um, but I largely do it through poetry and song. And like when I did that performance, I focused more so on my poetry and my song because, you know, I was trying to keep it as simple as possible, but it's also going to incorporate um, movement as well um, later on down the line and probably some visual aspects. Nice. Well, shit, let's take a look. Like, let's take a look for a second. <laughs> Hold on. 
Oh, yeah, that's what I was on. You could never hear the echoes, ghost cries of a yesterday you never sung about. I, a call and response unto myself. Oops, sorry. Digging my way out of bottomless fears and empty desires. I thought I was a brave soul, poet to your avalanche, warrior to your reservations, my body an altar to your insecurities. I'm used to sacrifice. But oh, take me from this mountain, precipice of narcissist woe. I have learned the hard way that self-flagellation serves no god and purifies only the whip. <laughs> Ooh, had to had to put your face in the voice and do that. <laughs> uh, let me tell you what I liked about. First of all, I want to address the adoptee thing. Um, the important thing that I get out of it is that you need to show a lot of people that are adopted that they're not alone because their differences, uh, uh, different adopted kids, because their differences are so. Um, um, unique, I won't say broad or, or acute or, or, or even obtuse, but unique. There's, the differences are so unique that it's very easy to feel like you're the only one out there. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I really, this whole mentoring thing you're saying, you showed is that just like people who are not adopted, um, the way that we can use our differences and, and come together, you mm -hmm. know, People that feel like outcasts are left out are, are, are the very ones that can take everybody and bring everyone together. It's just it's just mm -hmm. it's a fascinating. You know me. I'm always going to find like some some emotional uh, investment part to, to, to the, the work they're doing, because I, I guess because I'm like that, I, I recognize the, the work being put in. And, and sometimes you understand mm -hmm. the why and then the how. And and I really, really like what I, what I, I like the interview. You know, you did the the Q and A oh, of what you. it was about. Um, they should check it out. Give them the give, Can you give them the site since we're on? Um... Yeah, it's on the the BronxNet um, website, or even on YouTube. If you just Google like Rachel mm -hmm. Cara Perez BronxNet, mm -hmm. yep. it'll it'll come up. It'll be like the first thing that comes up because it's from January. Yeah. So BronxNet TV, Rachel Cara Perez. Uh, let me ask you something about a lot of the work you've been doing. You've been um sure. You've done a ton of work um, where conspicuously a lot of it is L-L-G-T-Q. Um, there are many letters. It's an alphabet yeah. soup. L-G-B-T-Q-I-A plus. Yeah. And we just call, it, we just call them our above. people, right? Um, but you, you've done, <laughs> but a lot of work um, yeah. has been uh, related to that or mm -hmm. the, the promotion of awareness of that and the embracement of that. Have you yeah. found that to be your mission statement through some epiphany or realization? Or was it something where like someone had some ideas and some work and you kind of just fell into this and you're like, you know what? Uh, I have many niches, but I think I found something I wanna, I wanna take the reins and run with this. Do you understand what I'm asking you? Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, it actually, I think, well, I identify as queer and I also identify as gender nonconforming. Mm -hmm. And um, and these terms didn't really exist when I first came out. <laughs> we didn't have those words. We came out as different things, you know. Um, so actually, like my involvement with anything within queer community is actually through the arts. And I 
entered that because I was actually looking for healing for myself. So, so it actually, my involvement um, and making it more public began when I joined a, a writing course called Creative Writing from Queer Resistance, which was um, designed and led by uh, a, a queer writer um, who's of Armenian descent based in Queens, Nancy Agabian, who's a mentor and friend of mine. Um, and that was led at the Leslie Lohman Museum, uh, formerly known as the Leslie Lohman Museum um, of Gay and Lesbian Art, and recently the, the title has been shortened. And it was in like the fall of 2017 that I entered this uh, queer writing workshop. Uh, and it was, it was like purely for myself. It was just because I felt disconnected and that I had not fully accepted my queer identity. And as a writer and a poet, I feel that writing has always been my my first form of self-care. Like even as a child, I was always an avid and obsessive journaler. Um, and it's always been my primary way of like processing. So it was just purely selfish, just like I need to do this for myself. And, you know, I felt like I had been suppressing a lot of things over the years. And then from that led to readings, public readings. And from that led to, you know, collaborations with other alumni of different you know iterations of that workshop and then we created um, a queer writing collective uh, entitled streaks of lavender and then we created a zine of the same name and so that's where it first started where i was like oh i can be myself outward facing and share my story and people want to hear it oh that's interesting and then because i was became more vocal with that um, the community is kind of small, just like any artist community in New York, the same thing with like queer folk, right? So, and a lot of us are artists. So I think I was just constantly connected from one thing to another and through arts education, um, you know, more th things would come to me and then I would, I just, you know, kept saying yes to them. Um, but it really started with me trying to find self-acceptance and then deciding to share my story uh, or my exploration or frustrations through the art form of very mostly writing and poetry in that context, and then getting involved with other initiatives that could help other people potentially do the same. Yeah, man, what awesome. It's something that I'm glad you're doing because I think because like you said, because it's small, um, and with respect to small small movements and communities and and what uh, and agendas us uh, uh, good or good good agendas that people are trying to push, I think that comes with the territory that you have to have some talent there to to move to move the needle to move to move mm -hmm. the the meter if you will left to right, and because you're so talented and because you decided to use your talent in this respect, I think it's getting the attention it deserves and i really really i just you know i hope i hope that you continue to do more of this but i also hope people who who, who see this this work and see your talent can um will will allow you to, to continue to do other things outside of that you know because you know like george clooney had to do er before he got to do you know good night and good luck right <laughs> right sometimes yeah. you know sometimes you feel like you're selling out because you got to do commercial work but but sometimes you have to do commercial work to put yourself in a position to do the stuff, the stuff that you want to do, unless you already have this opportunity or not privilege, but like, um, yeah, opportunity to do that work right away. 
Like I, I mentioned mm-hmm. Clooney because Clooney, like ER was fun to him. Out of sight with, with Jennifer Lopez. You know, those are fun films and television and what and this and that. But if right. you look at Syriana, you look at some of his most recent mm, work, the last yeah. the last decade, Syriana, you look at Good Night and Good Luck, right. uh, even something stupid as Men Who Stare at Goats or something like that. Um, right. <laughs> uh, consistent with what what we as actors see what his mission statement is. He, he He's doing the work he wants to do now. But sometimes right, you got to yeah. break a few eggs and make that omelet, you know. Um, yeah. Go back as far as Shakespeare, right? He had to do Titus Andronicus uh, to make some money so he could do Hamlet and so he could do, that, you know, other stuff yeah. like that. So, I mean, go ahead. Oh, but I actually, I don't feel like, like working within, um, like working so closely to my identity, I don't feel like it's a stepping stone to anything else. No, that's, that's unique. Um, Yeah. I just, I just feel like this is what I, I am doing what I want to do, but it's, it's definitely like the way that I'm using the arts in my life is definitely different than the way I thought it would look when I was at Marymount, for instance. Um, and I think it's very different from like the way that like my family <laughs> perhaps imagined it because it's not as mainstream. It's not as like um, commercial. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it took me a long time to realize I wasn't as interested in pursuing a really traditional um, the- theatrical path. And I, and I actually credit a lot of that. Like the reason I'm even interested in like, the arts and social justice, like very often, like my elevator pitch, as it were, is, you know, I, ex- I explore and work at the intersection of a social, ar- a social justice and the arts in my personal artistic practice and in my work, whether it's as a teaching artist, because I've worked as an arts educator for a number of years now um, in both Spanish and English. Like I've worked with a lot of refugee youth. I've worked with like New York City youth, um, predominantly, largely in black and brown communities. Um, but I'm actually more interested in the way theater can bring people together and help us um, collaborate and kind of form, communi- create community. And I credit like Marymount and UACT and fucking A for actually like planting those seeds. Cause I think my political conscience was awakened when we were at Marymount and when we were all working together and I, and like to be in a play like fucking A. What, what year was that? It was like 2005 that we did uh, that? It was 2006. 2006, right. Yeah. Like that, for me as a young person at the time, I was like, oh, you can use theater to, to, mm-hmm. to make a statement, to draw attention to something, because that also draws the attention to like the ridiculous, like the disproportionate number of like a black men incarcerated. But it's told in this almost like fantastical, magical, realist way, but it actually like hits really close to home and it's, and it's graphic too. Um, but I was like, oh, I didn't know you could use theater in this way. And that to me has always just been so much more compelling personally. So I feel like whenever I do do something that's more traditional, it still has to be saying something. It still has a message or, um, and I, do, and I guess I do a lot of like community organizing or, or activism through the arts as it were. Right. If I if I can call it that, I'd like to. Maybe I'm being aspirational, but <laughs> all right. So 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 for everybody listening at home, for all of my um, athletic followers who might have thought this girl played some volleyball, <laughs> and, and well, you, I did you know, in high school. Yes. I was the captain and That's the MVP. Right. That's right. So exactly. So. Yeah, so, so, for those, so those of you who were expecting like a player but actually got a real human being, <laughs> uh, the play, <laughs> Sorry. the play, um, 
the play we're talking about is called Fucking A. It's, the playwright yeah. is Susan Laurie Parks, who won Pulitzer for Best Drama for um, for the play Top Dog Underdog, which had most 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 death, and Jeffrey Wright, two person play. I actually saw it as great. So Fucking A was um, a play that we as students at Marymount Manhattan College put on ourselves unassisted by the faculty of Marymount Manhattan yeah. College. And not uh, even really supported. Sorry. Oh, hell I just no. to throw that in there. Hell People no. were like, what? It has a curse word? This is not going to be, this is not going to be good. And we're like, you haven't even read the play. How can yeah. you say we shouldn't do it? But the <laughs> same hypocrites, the same weekend we're doing in the boom, boom room where, where they were, you know, where white people were allowed to use the N word and all that stuff. So don't, don't even get exactly. me started. Don't even get me started. I, I, I those niggers. I got problems with niggers. <laughs> niggers this. Yeah, niggers. Exactly. What? Yes, but but yeah. they worried about language and fucking A? <laughs> you worried about yeah, language? Exactly. Go kick rocks. Uh, so, yeah. so anyway, and I'm getting somewhere and I'm going to give you the floor. Ishmael Wilson, young, beautiful mind, 20 years old at the time, not even old enough to get into a bar and have a drink, had a vision. All of the plays yeah. at Marymount were directed towards um, non-African-American and not cultural, what we will affectionately refer to as cultural theater. And if you don't have plays that are cultural theater or african-american you're not going to cast african-american and latino latino students they'll they they try and they always feel like they're hopelessly miscast but ishmael wilson had other plans he started a group called u act this is for everybody listening u act is called united artists of color theater and it was a movement he started he did a small project called august wilson tribute i i was even in it with seven guitars and this and that and then he dared to do the biggest ensemble play not supported by a faculty in any college program in the United States of America. Students put this on ourselves. We got our own space at Marymount, the something we call the eighth floor, which used to be a swimming pool. Uh, uh, that they got rid of the pool and it was just this big open space where like dancers yeah. could rehearse and you know people could do yep. scene work and like people can like hold a piece of paper and talk to themselves and look like absolute crazy people. So yes. Ishmael had this vision to do a Susan Laurie Parks play that provokes what you're talking about. That that since yeah. that takes this surreal, um, uh, um, absurdist um, style to to make people aware of un, unfair incarceration. Uh, weird. They talked. To, we. She talked about white privilege back then, before white privilege was a, was, was an actual word. This is 2006, people. Yeah. And yeah. Basically, the cast had about. 20 plus people then all of a sudden um there were people that were interested and this is where i, I push back on you um someone who who's very good at lighting is like i heard you guys are doing a play and, and i'm excited tell me what can i do to help uh this guy's like i'm really good at making costumes you know i want to be a part of this tell me tell me what i can do to help you know um i came along i'm Ishmael, I'm ex-military. You know, you're bounty hunters. You know, you want them in shape and you want them scary looking. How can I help? And he's like, okay. You were really fucking scary when yeah. you did that too. I was like, oh my God, <laughs> this is so real. Yeah, so <laughs> it was great because it was United Artists of Color Theater and the other yeah. color, which was white, looked like they wanted they wanted into and they wanted to help and these weren't people mm -hmm. they didn't want to help because they didn't get cast in something they they literally wanted to be a part of something that 
they saw was special. And this play, for yeah. everybody listening, which won best play in our school, because and, and it was the first yeah. time it was the first time uh, something won best play that was not directed or navigated by the faculty. This was all student run, followed by this brilliant mind and this talented lead. And it was three days, and it was standing room only. And the last day, um, I believe Susan Watson Turner came. She was the, the director of The Wiz, the first production of The Wiz. And I believe there might, there might have been a, um, a Susan Laurie Parks um, sighting, but that's that's that. I think that's an urban myth. But um, <laughs> don't tell me that. I'm gonna have a heart attack. I know it was it was terrific. <laughs> but I did not hear that back then. <laughs> yeah. Oh. So Rachel Perez. <laughs> With three days left before opening night, who was actually oh, yeah. was Rachel? You were an understudy for the lead role. Yeah, for I was a, yeah, I was the understudy and the assistant. I was supposed to be an, the assistant director and understudy, or with production assistant. Yeah. I forget. Joy- I wasn't supposed to be in it. I was like doing another show, and I was the understudy and like assistant directing. Or yes. Something. So big falling out. Joey Sears and Ishmael falling out. We have three days to prepare this 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 play without a lead. And in comes Rachel Perez. Talk me through that process as far as running lines, memorization, Um, moment-to-moment rehearsal scene study. Um, Talk to me about that. So... Um, unex- so I, so the, so as the understudy, I, I never expected to actually be acting in the play itself. I had just, um, finished, uh, overlapping it and ending. I think I had just done one of the main stage. I think I had just done like it was Wild a musical. Party, the musical. Yes. Yeah. So I had just done that. And then I was also kind of sick and I was like back and forth with strep throat. And I was like, I was just doing too much and kind of like burnt out. And so it was like I had done like some other concert and then the main stage. And then this was like the third thing in a row, right? One right after the other. But I, but I, but I felt like I was part of it in a way that I could manage because I was like, okay, well, I'm not going to actually be acting in this. And probably I didn't think I'd have to like really learn the lines either. <laughs> but I was the understudy. But was I really memorized? No, you, I wasn't ready you for that. You battle thing. wench. You think this is a film? <laughs> yeah, I was like, I'm not going to go on. I'm just here to support people and to like make sure the actors are happy. Um, but no, so then, you know, unexpectedly, uh, I had to step in and like, well, you're the understudy. And I was like, oh, shit, I really wasn't prepared to actually go on. So I had like, what? Yeah, I had like, I don't even think it was a full week. I had like a few, yeah, a few Three days, days to just... To, it was a, it was, wow, it was a, it's like a blur, and and to learn everything. So I basically I didn't go to I didn't go to class. I just skipped classes because I was just like this is more important, and this is why I'm at school anyway. I can make up the other shit, um, but I'm here to perform and tell stories, and that's my priority. And so, basically, we uh, set up a schedule for like Ishmael was amazing, and Ishmael, um, like to this day, is probably like really. He might be like the seed that, that, that made me even think of myself as a political being because um, I didn't really understand what that meant. And then like my friendship with him, uh, I think just like irreversibly changed my life and my identity as an artist as well. Um, but he set up schedules. So like people, I knew I wasn't going to class, so we were like setting up schedules for people to come and voluntarily help me memorize and run lines during the day. And then at night I was dorming at the 92nd street. Why? And you remember Kristen McCullum or CJ? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What we, he and I lived on the same floor and he every night would stay up with me until like 3am 
running lines and helping wow. me memorize. And I was like so sleep deprived and we would be like jumping up and down on the bed, like like doing weird, like yelling the, the lines back and forth, like try, like again, to come in line again, da, 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 you know, and you, when you're memorizing lines, you, you, you figure out what works for you. And like, um, you know, and the thing is it, it, with Susan Lloyd Parks in this particular play, she also had like, these moments where there were these long speeches, which were like Brechtian in style also, because like the, the actor would step away from the scene and then address the audience directly. But then it would be this almost like she created a, her own language within the play. So you're learning like, like your lines in what have you, American English that you're somewhat, you know, that you're pretty much familiar with. And then she had this like other language and different kind of syntax and vernacular that like all the characters had to also learn. So getting that exactly right was like super stressful. <laughs> but I think I just didn't really sleep for a few days and I just was memorizing lines all day at school like i would be in the building but i wouldn't go to class honestly i just like memorized the lines people would come in on shifts that like signed up to help me out and then at night i would continue to go over the lines and cj was like amazing and and would stay up with me um just like going over everything that we, i had just learned and I, I honestly even during dress rehearsal i was still i would be like reviewing something right before i went on stage just in case um, so it was just fresh in my mind because sometimes I just needed like one line reminder of what came next and then the rest would fall into place. Um, but it was, it was, it was so intense. Um, and it was, it, it's literally the show that, that like I, I can, it's the only thing I can ever say I literally put my blood, sweat and tears into literally. Well, you did All sweat, you, you did sweat and you did cry. Oh, God. And you for sure did bleed. <laughs> I did bleed, yeah. Um, Matt Dumont was um, was on a um, um, wow. We're in episode fifty three. Could have could have been like six months, almost a year ago. And we were discussing a scene. This is the very last yeah. show. Um, yeah. Monster, who's supposed to be your son, Eugene Jones III. Right. God bless another. We're, since we're in, uh, we're in the subject of talking about talented people, well, I'm, yeah. I, I'm trying not to drive us off the cliff with different people. I'm trying to stay on course here. But Eugene, ta the very talented Eugene Jones III, uh, played your son, and there was a scene where he's yeah. breaking into the house, and he's just looking for money, I guess, and he's moving clothes out of the way. He's just throwing stuff up mm -hmm. and down, and there was a Jack, a bottle of Jack Daniel's whiskey. Um, the previous two nights, he 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 pushed the bottle off the table, and the bottle didn't break because it's right. pretty hard glass. But sometimes when you, just like a Kevlar vest, if you shoot at it once, it'll take the bullet, but you shoot at it again, and it, it might shatter into a million pieces. So mm -hmm. the last night, same bottle, he swept it off the table, and it, when it hit the, the ground, you heard, and everybody in the backstage went like, we, we went like, what was that? Um, sounds like glass, what was, you know, so I'm, I'm curtain jerking, you know, because I'm not in the scene, and, and um, um, you know, and I'm like, and I'm like, they're like, what's going on? I was like, Eugene knocked a bottle down. It's like, okay, fuck it, life goes on. So two scenes later, you're in a picnic scene with someone you think is your son, and it turned right. out to be an escape um, um, criminal and rapist, and mm -hmm. it ended up being a rape scene where he threw you on the ground. And as coincidence would have it, where he threw you on the ground was where the shards and shards of glass were. 
And yeah. you, you didn't have some... time to clean it up in between no. scenes. And it's, a, and it's a carpet. The eighth floor space, all on the same floor, same level. There's no difference between the audience and the actors. And nope. it's carpet. So you know how hard it is to clean up anything. There were shards of glass stuck in this carpet. People tried to sweep it away, but we didn't really have time. No, you didn't have time between the scenes and anything. So basically... This rape scene, which I felt must have felt like an hour, it was only only a minute or two, was with yeah. your back rolling back and forth, trying to resist being raped, on sh with your back rolling back and forth on shards and shards and shards of broken glass. Yeah, and I had a, a very thin tank top on. Yes, too, so I you did. did. Have, like, you had the shoulder really, strap. It was like a thinner than this. It was like spaghetti strap. Yeah. It was like a very simple, thin tank top. And like a skirt. And the memory I have, I mean, I, I, I'm not using this memory as a straw man or whatever, but, um, but the memory I have was this because you had to find a way to, in between act one and act two, everyone has tweezers. And they're pulling pieces of glass out of your outside, off of your yeah. back. So I mean, some of it you couldn't. I mean, your back was shining pretty much. But we tried to remove as much glass as we could, and the whole yeah. time you're trying to find you're you're finding a way to block all this out because the uh, mission in you says I still have a job to do. It was it was some Navy Seal Navy Seal shit to me because uh, one of the things we say about pain. Because uh, I served in the military, I'm not. I wasn't. In, yeah. I wasn't in a member of the spec ops community. But something we say about pain is it reminds you you have you still have a job to do. It reminds you that you're gonna you're gonna feel this until you finish what you gotta finish. Um, and the last thing about pain is it reminds you you're not dead yet. <laughs> but right. But um, highlighting the first part of that reminds you this this discomfort reminded you that um, that you still had a job to do. And the thing that impressed me the most, this isn't even a question, this is just me talking shit here. Um, the thing that impressed me the most was your discipline to, to know that you still had a job to do. You still performed top, top level. Um, it didn't, we didn't have to stop the play because of it. We didn't have to cancel a second act because of it. And there was so much leaning on it because that last day, there were so many important people that came to see the play. Mm -hmm. People found out about the first night and was like, all right, I want to go Saturday. They're like, nope, can't go Saturday. Sold out, you know? Okay, I'll go Sunday. Yeah, all yeah, right, yeah. Sunday sold out too. No, I got to get in. I got to get in. And this Sunday was Susan Watson Turner, possibly Susan Laurie Parks. Um, just, uh, of course, the faculty, because now they hear, they're hearing buzz about this. Uh, yeah, in the yeah. Boom Boom Room was an afternoon production that just finished. So they all agreed to, to just stand in the, uh, against the wall if they could just be let right. in. So the entire cast from in the Boom Boom Room was there. And there was so much leaning on it because now that they got the attention that we thought our, our mission statement deserved. You know, right. Ishmael's like, what's mm -hmm. your fucking name? What's your fucking name? Um, and... So impressed. You, 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 you freaking did it. Thank you. You freaking did it. Thank you. you know? <laughs> what was, now, this is why I'm going to give you the floor. What was the most difficult um, moment um, in the rehearsal and process and in the performance that, that was, if you can remember, that you had to conquer? Was it that, was it the one I mentioned? Um, yeah, I think so. 
well, it's like it was kind of like two things. It was like there, there's that scene, um, the, the rape scene, and also coincidentally, the person who played the rapist in that scene was my friend Kristen CJ, who helped yeah. me memorize my lines every night. So we were really good friends, and he had to. And in that scene, we have to be enemies, and he has to commit a very violent act. So I know that fucked with both of us. And usually after that scene, not, both of us were left alone. Um, and nobody really talked to us because we both needed a little bit of space to process. And then we were all good, but it's just like a very intense thing. I think, I think in the rehearsal process, the hardest thing was actually, it's, you actually said something to me one day. You like, I think it was you and Ishmael was like, you have to be careful that you don't go too far. <laughs> I think that that was my biggest thing. I think there was like one point where in rehearsal, I remember you come in to take my son from me mm -hmm. and I start, I started freaking out and screaming and crying and I grabbed him back to try to get him from you. And you were like, okay, well, you still have to like, let me get him off the stage. <laughs> because, it's still, it's still, yeah. there's still a stage direction here. Don't get too lost that you don't, you know, or that you lose your voice or that, you know, things like that. So it was like trying to, to ride that balance of being true to the story and being in the moment, but still taking care of my instrument, of my body, of my voice, of my mental health. I don't think I did a very good job at the time. I was 19 years old, <laughs> um, but I, I was a little more cognizant of it. I remember after that particular day, because like, I think you had said something, I think Ishmael had said something, I think Sylvester maybe said something too, where they were like, you still have other things to do. Like, I don't want you, you have to remember, be in it, but also be the one, be, be like, you're still the artist, like painting this, you know, you have to still have the control. So I think that the hardest thing for me was that, and a lot of it was personal, um, like the trauma was not like totally unfamiliar to me just because like within my life, I know people or have been connected to like similar acts of violence, either directly or indirectly. And so I think that was really fucking with me. And so that was, that was the most challenging thing was to have it be personal, to care so deeply, to, to, to be feeling and expressing a, a, this word and the stories and being in those moments, but still having to remember that I have to take care of myself. That was really the hardest thing. That was the hardest thing. Um, all right. Acting is real, mm -hmm. is real human behavior because we have an audience to talk to. I, I'm going to tell you something you already know, but I have to indulge for a second if I, if I may. Acting mm -hmm. is real human behavior in imaginary circumstances. And the more we as actors can take these imaginary circumstances and make them real, the more believable the scene is and the more emotionally or, or in some cases intellectually stimulated the audience is. So that is the path. And the challenge, like you just said, is if you make it too real um, and, and for director purposes, you might yeah. veer away from um, what you, what your personal choice, what you would do in that situation might be not connected to the given circumstances of the play. Um, and that's, mm -hmm. and that's the challenge. I'll give you an example. Like you, you just cut your, at the end of the scene, it's the end of the act, the end of the scene, you just cut your son's throat, <laughs> right? Because you knew that if he got caught, the people that caught, catch him, 
or the, the pre- people that would catch him would do worse. So you, yeah, you Papa, said, I, I found a way. Lynched by the state, yeah. Yeah. I would with his, take with his balls cut off. Or, yeah. Like, well, we're going to yeah. put him on a stick, right? We're going to run, we're going to run him up, run him up a stick or something, which is like, yeah, yeah. like if you can imagine that. So the given circumstances here is you just cut your son's throat and then these people are still trying to take him away. But there's also a realization that when they take him away, you're never going to hold him again. You're never going to see him again. You're never going to feel right. him again. And and right. and if he goes away, your your two choices of I'd rather have my dead son in my arms <laughs> than than never see him again is a is a real thing. It is a it's a real emotion. It's a real emotion, yeah. and it is and it was a challenge. It is a challenge for you as an actor. I mean. I mean, listen. No, I'm, I'm I'm the hunter. I had a knife. <laughs> I had I had that big old that big ass bayonet, right? No, normally someone that sees someone with a knife like that and assumes they know how to use it is going to be like, okay, hey, he's already dead. No, but we're not talking yeah, about yeah, that. Yeah. We're talking about your son. We're talking about right. something that your 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 rational mind is willing to risk death because of because of which which because of the passion and the emotional investment you're consumed in and and this this character or should i say his name's monster and his name real name is eugene jones that was so real and the, the final part of the scene because the hunters we came we didn't come in on the stage we came in through the audience because we thought it would be more intimidating we thought it'd be more scary if we came in through the audience and we echoed the word shadow so Hunter one, two, and three went shadow, shadow, shadow. So shadow was in stereo, and then the audience comes out, and we're and we're you know I got this big ass knife. This one's got a baseball bat. This one's got chains, and we're coming through the audience, and that feels real. But before that scene, when you said the line, I know to, I know a way to do it that doesn't hurt. The uh, I was in the audience, and the person sitting in the chair next to me just started. Fallen. She started crying because she knew, because the journey you took him on that led him all the way to the end of that play. She knew what was going to come next. You were going to you were going to yeah. cut your you had to cut your son's throat, or, yeah. or or have him face something that that will make him wish he was dead. Yeah. And that is a very, very, very real and very challenging and very fucking difficult thing for actors to do. Right. Because mm-hmm. and at the end of the day, it's not real. Right. Eugene's not your son. <laughs> um, we didn't you didn't really cut his throat. And that, that knife, I'm really not going to put it through your eyeball. OK, but right. in order to get to the place for the audience to believe it. Like Ishmael says, go, don't go too far. But he didn't say don't go. <laughs> Yeah, no, you, you gotta go. <laughs> right. And, and Ishmael and I were like very close friends, too. So I actually gave him permission to kind of talk me up like one-on-one sometimes privately because like I loved also like the, the living truthfully and the given imaginary circumstance that's that's Meisner right so like kind of putting yourself into the same circumstances as the character um I'm a kinesthetic learner so I can't just like sit and read something and then I understand it I have to say it out loud and ideally be moving when I'm processing the information and so some of my character development work was like one-on-one with Ishmael where I would have him talk to me directly as if I am the character and, and just like improv and like kind of like say fucked up things that maybe my character would be hearing or thinking or and that would be part of my my character work um and you know and we and we would 
we would we've done that we had done that before and like we you know i i did it with consent and we talked about it and we checked in um because i just knew that like i also with the so short time i had to do a lot of character work in a very compounded you know a very compressed excuse me amount of time like normally i would have had a few a few weeks at least to like really kind of take my time and go layer by layer and i kind of had to just dive in and just do all the things and say yes to everything. That's the way I chose to do it, right? Um, but also, even though the story, as extreme as it is, it's very true to life to me. And it was then and it is now, you know? Like, there's there's so many young black men being lynched on the streets or within the prison system slowly, methodically, or brashly, you know? And this place spoke to that, and it was an education for me at that age, and, and I don't, and I think it's even more true now, I mean, like, it's never stopped being true, the message of that, and what it's getting at, and how, you know, I mean, how the system really fucks with young black men, and, and, and single black mothers, and, like, the black community, you know, and, and I, and I, and I love Susan Lloyd Parks for, for, for that reason, and I love this show for that reason, because it still speaks that truth, you know, I love, and this is just the uh, genre it's told, but it's also true to life. I, I love it because before it became popular, before it became the, mm -hmm. the, the right thing to do. Very much like right. Colin Kaepernick taking a knee, which was a controversial thing. He's looking pretty good now, <laughs> you know. Right, and now you put on the freaking NBA and it's like you see Black Lives Matter across the, 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 floor. The, the, the floor. And I'm like, okay, even a year ago, even like eight months ago, you would not have seen that. So I'm, I'm not trust, I'm distrustful because so many people have jumped on the bandwagon now because it's, it's popular and it's commercial. It's a band, it can, it can be easily be a bandwagon fallacy on some people's part. Exactly. So I'm just like, I don't know. It's like, we've been, we've been here. This has been our reality, our community's reality, our brother's reality, our son's reality. Our, you know, our, like for, for black folks, it's like, we've been here. We've been going through this. Now, because it's popular and trending, other people are posting things and like making things commercial. But is it going to last? Is that... Are, are, like you know what I'm saying like I am not being like woohoo yeah everybody's on the wagon I'm like cool that's great that you put hashtag but with caution <laughs> you know yeah like I like your t-shirt awesome where's your money going you know are you restructuring your business your corporation your family life your home life your interpersonal relationships is that too much work oh because it's a lot of work but we don't get days off <laughs> you know what I'm saying like we don't have a choice this is our lives well, Stephen A. Smith once said, um, white people have a career, black people have a responsibility. Like, everything, everything a black man does, um, the more popular he becomes, the more highlighted his mistakes um, are, are, are out there for the public to see where a white person who's more popular or in that same position or, or higher, doesn't even get vil half, half vilified for that. Like LeBron James has to be, think about what, he, what he's done in his life. 17 years old, this man has handled, hand, handed millions of dollars in a contract, right? I don't know, let's just say for argument's sake of $10 million. 
the man graduated high school, decided he did not want to play college college basketball for, for reasons. I, I, I suspect, one, he felt like he was ready for the NBA at 18. And there's another part of him that didn't feel like giving the NCAA money while he plays for free while, and while they exploit right, exactly. him. And, they and, 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 and everyone's yep. going to make money off of him except for him, right? Exactly, I, yeah. I have I have a podcast called Sports Debate Tuesday. Okay, I get I get money promoting that podcast just talking about college sports. That I get paid. Okay, yeah. so and until recently, mm-hmm. and I, I man, I got a, a hundred stories to tell you about right right to likeness lawsuits and this and that by black men. Um, I want to highlight someone later. His name is Jason Olive. Um, but think of LeBron James, graduated high school, got handed a bunch of money, didn't spend it like a like a fucking G. Married his high school sweetheart. No, no, no scandals off the court. Decided he wanted to win a title, goes to Miami. Decides he wants to come back home, right the wrong, goes back to Cleveland, wins. And his, he's, to me, the GOAT is Michael Jordan. But the basketball GOAT on and off the court is LeBron James. Because that man's philanthropy and the stuff that, that you don't see him with a big check next to someone taking a picture is off the page the man is Mm. offering scholarships to anyone in his hometown that graduates high school with a certain gpa he's gonna pay for their college he's gonna pay for their college so that man seized his own power and that power transcended to the nba and as far as this whole taking a knee and sitting things you never saw basketball players take a knee because in their collective bargaining agreement it was contracted that they were to stand. And that's the difference between the NFL and the NBA. The NFL, um, all, and, the, and originally, people don't notice, you might not notice, all the players stayed in the back for the national anthem. They didn't come out. And then when the anthem was done, now you're starting lineups because that's, that's how they set, that set the stage. They were never even out there. But after 2009, the, our government of the United States gave the NFL $4.2 billion for what I would affectionately refer to as paid patriotism. Let the players stand out there. Let them, you know, let them bleed a little red, white, and blue and this and that. So that's, so for the people like, oh, stand for the anthem of people that says one nation under God that, you know, don't realize that was 19, that was put in there. And for the people that, that, that were thinking the NFL players were standing for the national anthem for the last 50 years, uh, um, go kick rocks. Do your, do your fucking homework. Do your homework. That was 2009. That's only 11 years ago. So, um nice. And I don't want to get too much off of our page, but I wanted to give you an example of how, no, but, how yeah. black, but like, do you know what LeBron James had to do to, to achieve his status? He had to be mm-hmm. perfect. And they still want to crucify him. <laughs> they still want to vilify him because he finally uses platform to actually have an opinion about politics. Okay. And that, that, that's, mm-hmm. and good for him. And the NBA, and this is what I was getting to the NBA when it was good for the owner's bottom line to not get involved in this politics shit, if they thought it would affect their money, their intake, they step, yeah. they stayed away from it. But when you have the best players saying, this is what I want, all of a sudden, yeah. from from That's the owners and the new commissioner <laughs> silver that commissioner is awesome dude i'm not saying stern wasn't stern was stern was very for the players too the nba right now and whether you're in a sports or not the nba mm-hmm. is the not the only league but the as far as a, a league being run by the players and not by the coaches and the gms a league that is influenced and run by the players more so than any other sport is the national basketball association 
They, mm. they, if it comes down to a coach having to go or a player, it's going to be the coach. Unless it's Popovich mm-hmm. or unless, you know, Pat Riley back in the day. There are some untouchables. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I call them the, the yeah, Fab yeah, Five. Yeah. But think about every other league. If it's the coach or the yeah. player, the player's gone. So what people True. like LeBron James have done has made Black Lives Matter a movement. And I have friends. Listen, I have friends, intelligent friends, saying I'm not watching the NBA anymore because of that. And, I'm, and the NBA and the owners have decided, okay, that's money well spent. That's that we lost. We lost a, a ticket holder for that. But our our, our audience is predominantly uh, uh, it's global, right? Look at all the white players. What do you? I have a joke for you. What do you call a white a, a good white player in the NBA? European. <laughs> <laughs> European. <laughs> okay. The NBA is global. The best white players aren't even aren't even American white. So if an American white mm-hmm. person decides that their nationalism takes precedence over over um activism, fine. Bye. <laughs> Bye. We, we still right. we still got yeah. Croatia still gonna watch us, Lithuania's still gonna watch us, right. China. <laughs> China is for sure gonna watch us. Um Ghana's gonna yeah. watch us, South Africa's gonna watch us, Australia's gonna watch us, Italy's gonna watch us, and every black yeah, yeah. American in the United States of America is going to continue to watch us. And now I'm gonna inhale mm-hmm. uh because the point I was trying to get to is because what they're doing now is what you were doing 10 years ago and is continuing to do now. And I don't blame you for having cause to pause and being careful of who who um, is supporting you out of convenience. Because, listen, they want to help. That's good, too. But but we need but uh, if you want to keep an eye on them, who the fuck can blame you? <laughs> who the fuck can blame you? <laughs> yeah. Oh, by the way, after yeah. fucking a. Yeah. This is what this is what I wanted to get to before we steered away for too far from fucking A. After fucking A, what happens a year later? Some woman by the name of Patricia Simon, who's the head up of the musical theater department, was like, okay, the black people want a black play? We're gonna put on a black musical. So we do ragtime. And Yeah, and Native Sun. They were they put on two like predominantly David black, Mold, yeah. black stories yes. like directly after we did that. Because yeah. they were like, Oh, we didn't know that there was all this black Talent. Well, it fell on Here. its face for two ways. Native Son, the person that was supposed to be the lead, Eugene Jones, um, got permission to opt out. He was in the BFA, and in the BFA, you can't opt out without permission during the academic year. And that's why a lot of people choose BA instead of BFA, because the BFA, you're not allowed to do outside work during the academic year. But if the outside work you're oh, doing... Oh, right, because he got the but, film. Yeah, not just that. He did Mother Courage with Meryl Streep and Kevin oh, Klein. Right. I went to that cast party. I went to that cast party. Isn't that amazing? I got to meet Meryl Streep. I went to that cast so, party. I was like, yay. Sorry. So, um, no, and we can talk about Meryl Streep in a minute. But, um, so, it, Native Son fell a little bit because they lost their lead. And But David Mould, good director, and, and even on his worst day, a, a, a consummate professional found a way to put on a good play. But what happened after mm-hmm. that ragtime, uh, mm-hmm. actresses like Ashley Omar Devois, um, I don't. You weren't in ragtime either, right? A uh, CJ was, um, but there were a lot of people in the BA program because, in a lot of people in the BFA program didn't have a musical theater minor. They weren't required to audition. If you're a musical theater minor, uh, the BA kids, they weren't. They're allowed to do outside work during the academic year, so a lot of them opted out. Right. So she got so upset that certain people didn't audition or weren't interested in auditioning. She said in the theater office. 
And Ashley was there and two other people were there to, to, to witness. That's the last time I do this for you people. <laughs> Patricia Simon said, that is the last time I do this, do this favor or uh, paraphrasing, do this for you people. And just last year, if you read the New York, if you Google search New York Post, um, Marymount was doing an activism thing and just raising um, uh, um, awareness for police brutality and equality. And during the conference, Patricia Simon <laughs> fell asleep <laughs> and it made the New York Post. <laughs> Seriously? Oh my God, she fell asleep. Powerful. I'm gonna, I'm gonna pull recently, it up. Hold on. <laughs> but even recently, um, uh, Marymount students have been black and brown Marymount students have been calling out the theater department for racist practices and casting, and like that has been a, an ongoing thing that I've been seeing like on the social media, like you know through the social media grapevine. A lot of like current or recent students of the theater department have been calling it out for their racist practices. And then like alumni have also been commenting. Can I show you something? Hold that thought. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> students at pricey Marymount Manhattan College are demanding a veteran professor be fired for allegedly falling asleep during an anti-racist Zoom meeting. <laughs> they have a I petition say, oh of 1,800 signatures. <laughs> What's the date on this? This is um, New York Post, July 2020. Oh, yeah, that was last month. Yeah, wow, okay. And, and when she said that line, this is the last time I do this for you people, it was 2007. So 2007 to 2020. 13 years of progress. <laughs> We were definitely, we were, yeah, we were definitely ahead of our time. So since we're on this At least in that. subject of racism, I wanted yeah. to talk to you about the uncomfortable um, subject of um, protesters versus rioters, protesters, BLM mm -hmm. versus Antifa, um, and raising awareness and, and by the means of violence or, or nonviolence. And I'd like to give you my take because this might just inspire you to, to push back or agree or whatever. Yeah. I am very Martin Luther King-esque. I'm very, I think an eye for an eye leaves both people blind. And I, and I think violence only begets violence. And I think anyone who uses this opportunity to loot and to assail and, some, and in, in some cases lead to death is, is, is hurting the cause instead of helping the cause. There's also another part of me that believes that because people are protesting and pe because people are committing violence, it might cause the other side, I'll call them, to say, why can't she be more like them? Like in the 60s, it took Malcolm X to say, hey, if a cop shoots me, we're going to shoot a cop. <laughs> I don't call that, um, you know, violence. I call that intelligence. So it took a Malcolm X for everybody to say, why can't you be more like Martin Luther King? When before Malcolm, yeah. X, before Malcolm X came, what was happening to Martin Luther King? He was getting his ass beaten, trying, trying to cross a bridge. And then all of a sudden you have this extreme side that makes you say, why can't you be more like, like that person? I'm not saying violence helped and I'm not saying violence is super necessary. I'm just saying the violent acts uh, is history repeating itself. 
I'm not, I'm not even saying it's justified. I'm just saying that it's ironic <laughs> that, that it's repeating itself. I want to convey my personal disgust that people will take instances of violence and rioting and looting and um, lump everybody into the same category. Oh, they're fucking mm-hmm. liberals. All oh, the liberals are doing that. Oh, it's all the liberals' fault. Oh, Joe Biden's come contributing to the to to the violence. And I think that's very very unfair because that's just as unfair as the the protest in Charlottesville. To for everybody mm-hmm. to label Trump a racist because he he said there were some very fine people there because those are the same people that defend that defend that. But at the same time, I'd say, oh, you think everybody that votes Republicans are racist? Oh, that's, oh, you're, you're narrow-minded. Oh, you don't know what you're talking about. Trump's not racist. Trump's not racist. You're, you're, you're narrow-minded. You're just, you're just a libtard, you know. And then, then of course, it comes in a name-calling and then gaslighting. And then um, people, and our friends, Rachel, intelligent friends, fall down this slippery slope where one goes more further this way than one goes further that way. And I'm, I'm a little bit fed up. Because I've made enemies on both sides. Like, mm-hmm. I give an example, something you might disagree with. Uh, CNN mm-hmm. said Trump, um, Trump calls all Mexicans rapists. I don't think he did that. I think Trump said that that Mexico's not sending their best. They're sending people who rape. Um, but if you take the story and you say all Trump, all, you know, he calls all Mexicans rapists, that's going to set further people apart. To me, I think they should just put the quote directly there and let people. decide for themselves because I think the left is already going to have their mind made up and the right's already going to have their mind made up but they're the majority of this country are are people in the middle or they're they're independents or or non or non um uh, major parties 40 41 percent as of last year is the majority of the country so I want people to be fair I lean more left than right but like you Rachel like you and I think you'll agree I do not do not let my personal biases affect my critical thinking skills and I just want to see more people out there like that but I want your thoughts to violence the uh, the riots um, the timing of the protest um, and if you need to go further back what incited it mm-hmm. what in, uh, basically yeah. if it was it Floyd that was that the the, the ultimate inciting incident because there was Garner, there was Tamir Rice toy gun. You know, I mean, some people could make an argument looked real enough, got shot, whatever. I'm not I'm not making an argument for them. I'm just me. I'm just gonna make an argument for bad police training, but that's a whole nother story. So your thoughts on you can go further back the inciting incidents yeah. that leads to this, and your thoughts on protesting and violence and this and that. Please, floor is yours. Yeah, for me the original perpetrators of violence is white society. Like the original violence is enslaving my ancestors. And like there were plenty of, of, of um, acts of violence done against black communities for hundreds of years. And when it's done in, in defense, then it is becoming a criminal act. I personally am not a violent person, but I am not going to be one to tell someone not to be violent when they feel they are defending their lives especially when it's against a white supremacist system that this country is founded on. I agree with you that like, I don't think it's always like, I mean, I think people need to be strategic. I also know that there were also not everybody committing violence is necessarily for black lives matter either. There are always like insurgents. There are people that go in, you can't conflate. There are always going to be people that take advantage of an uprising or, or, or or of a a situation and loot. And I think that that's unfortunate. Of course I do. Am I surprised? No, because the system is fucked up. 
And I think that um, the reason people justify it on, like if a white person does it and walks around with, what is it, the, you know, a huge, I don't, what is it, AR-57, what was that? You yeah, AR-15. What it looked AR-15. like was an AR-15. I don't know any, yeah, I don't know guns. I don't know anything about it. So forgive my ignorance or maybe whatever. But um, that's intentional. You know, I, I think that, you know, the the system is functioning the way it was designed to function. And that is to put, and that is to benefit white people and to criminalize black folks and brown folks and non-white people. I am not surprised that when it gets to the point of unrest and protest, um, I, I don't say, oh, I support only peaceful protest. I think that that is um, condescending, me personally, yeah. because- I would say naive. Yeah, maybe naive. Yeah, because I also think like if it if it hadn't gotten as big as it did, then people wouldn't be paying attention. And also, I think it's not fair to say, uh, oh, you have to protest um, nicely and in and 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 dress nicely and and talk nicely and have um, accurately spelled uh, signs in order for me to respect you. Because then, once again, the no. oppressor <laughs> is dictating how I have to stand up for myself. And even Martin Luther King started to become a little bit more radicalized towards his the end of his life like Malcolm X kind of was 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 seeing how he could use certain allies to his benefit and like I think that they were you know meeting more in the middle in some ways and um I think it's very convenient to just make it be like oh there's violence and then there's the people that aren't violent I think whenever there's unrest you're going to have something of both and it's almost in human nature too so I I don't like you said I think naive is probably the best word but I think I've I've seen it I've heard it used in like very condescending ways, you know, like, oh, well now because they're violent, that's why we can't give them anything. That's why we can't do this. We can't do that. Um, so I just don't. They weren't going to get it anyway. Make, <laughs> yeah, I don't make, yeah, exactly. And also I think if anything has taught us like respectability politics, um, it, like it won't save you. Like I was very much raised in respectability politics. Like if I talk the right way, if I dress the right way, if I get the right education, right education, right? then I'll be safe. But like, that's not true. Harry Lewis Gates Jr. like several years ago was like arrested trying to get into his own fucking house. And he's got a doctorate. And like, I don't think I've ever seen that man on TV without a suit. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and, and you know, you thought like the foot you can go fucking bird watching and someone, you know, and a Karen will call the fucking cops on you. You can be sleeping or selling lemonade or sleeping in your house or taking a nap or just, you know, and so it's frustrating because it's like, it actually doesn't matter. If you're racist, you're going to think we're wrong no matter what we're doing. If I'm, do, if I'm being polite and saying, don't do this, like that doesn't make me more human than the person that's so fed up that, 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 that they threw, throw something through a window. And, you know, also, like I said, you don't always know that those are the same people doing those things. I think yep. that everybody gets thrown together. There are always going to be some people that are like really for the cause and maybe they're not burning things down. That could be an insurgent. That could be someone that's just like, fuck it. This represents capitalism and capitalism is an extension of this. Am I going around? I, I, I just don't think that I'm in the place to say, oh, you shouldn't do this. You shouldn't do that. Is it unfortunate that, you know, that some, some people's property gets fucked up? Yeah, but I don't think that their property is more important than the black lives that have been murdered by state sanctioned violence. Yeah. So, so, I so don't your, your answer is more about. I can't say. 
Yeah, so your answer is more about measured outrage, right? Like this, people yeah, are outraged about about simple. a store window being 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 crashed, but not outraged that someone got their life choked out of them for exactly. something that could have just been a so, parking ticket, <laughs> or, or or just I, a yeah. warrant, or just an outstanding yeah. warrant. The outstanding warrant should not result in death. Parking tickets should exactly. not run in death. Jogging while black should not result in death. Um, exactly. Right. Selling Lu- selling Lucy cigarettes movie. in Staten Island should not result in death. So exactly. And, and, and even every movement has the people who are more passive and it has the people that are warriors, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, like, like that even happens even within like indigenous culture. There's like this narrative of like, oh, everyone's like super peaceful and it's just the grandmas praying and dancing on the front lines. There are fucking warriors too, okay? And different tribes had different ways of doing things, just like different folks, everybody across like all cultures. They're gonna, you actually need both. And there will always be both. Yeah. You know, there will always be something of both. So I don't, I think it is naive to just say, oh, I can only support this type. If things weren't burning, I can tell you right now, the NBA wouldn't have Black Lives Matter plastered across the fucking basketball court. I think I don't think I think I attention because they would be I like, think, oh, let's arrest you and that's it. Well, I think what happened in Minnesota, um, made that happen and once once the the top three players in the nba spoke up i think that that was gonna happen um Mm -hmm. i like the word naive because instead of condescending because the movement and the and the the inciting incidents have to be motivated by african-american people but in order for them to be there to be real collective change um, I hate to say it, but you need white people to help too. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's no way that like the civil rights movement was not done. It was started and, and, and instigated by African-Americans, but you needed enough white people to get on board. And like you said, the challenge is who's really on my side? You know, who's really affecting my bottom line? Yeah. Who's really whatever? I'll give you an example. Like the r- racism is when you take Black Lives Matter and violent protesters and Antifa and take them and say they're all the same. That's 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 as that's if you're an educated person, that means you're aware of what you're saying. You're saying it anyway, which makes you a bigot or, 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 or a racial bigot. If you're un- uneducated, it's almost forgivable because you could at least try to talk to some of these people, which is why I still have so many friends. They're just there's just so many people that have their head missing. <laughs> Yeah. You're like, I'm still your friend because I think you just don't get it. Yeah, well, it's, and there's that. And you know what? A lot of them are coming around. Look, look, there, there's also a disturbing thing going on where a lot of people are admitting they had their head in the sand and you have the black side saying, no, your head's not in the sand. It's in front of you. You should have known the whole time. And that's not, and that's, Rachel, that's not always true. I, I grew up on Flatbush as someone who's biracial, whose mom is black, <laughs> three sisters who black, uncles black, grandmas black. The only white person was my father I never even met. He left my mother with a dollar, <laughs> okay, <laughs> to go on welfare. Right. So as someone who went from Flatbush Avenue to Harlem to this bubble, this beautiful la-la land in Hermosa Beach, where I'm just like, <laughs> la-la-la. It is, for someone that experiences both, there are, it is... Here, where I live, there are so many people that it, like you said, it doesn't affect them and it should affect them and they should know, but they're being, there's a a large group of people being honest. They just don't know. And sometimes just having a conversation instead of saying, don't talk to me because you don't know is the way to go. Um, That's one. Two, civil unrest, very thin line, isn't it? Between violence, civil unrest and violence. I, I never said be polite and neither are you. 
I never said dress properly yeah. and neither did you. I never said right. do it when it's not, there's not a traffic jam. Don't do it during rush hour. Do it when rush hour is over. No one's, I'm not saying that and neither are you. I'm just right. saying civil unrest where it makes someone uncomfortable enough to respond is the way to go. And if it results in violence, I don't condone it, but at this, I, I'm not surprised at the irony, at, at history, yeah. history repeating itself. Yeah. Here's, a, here's a list of five yeah. people who are out there, okay? And you're going to love this list I did because I, I posted it on my social media. One, Antifa, who makes no qualms about being violent. And if you're just out there just to commit violence, I want you locked under the fucking jail because anyone you think is a trumpeteer could be on you. Someone that could be on your side could get killed because you, because your, your, your rage is just swinging at anything that moves. And I'm like, I'm on your side, asshole. So two, opportunist who in the middle of all the chaos see the chance to get some free shit. <laughs> wow. So you know, what, electronic that store window just broke. Come get some. Yeah. Um, and I would even want to examine why there are opportunists because that also sheds light on how capitalism is oppressive. Yes. Because if we shouldn't even have a system where people feel the need to like, let, fuck it, let me take this. You know what I'm saying? Like, because, I mean, sometimes it's, it could be like, because they really need something and other yeah. times, yeah, there are just also greedy motherfuckers. Capitalism, capitalism is for the rich. Me, Okay, capitalism's for the rich. I want to set something straight here. I'm going to set something straight here. Capitalism's for the rich. Socialism's for the wealthy. The the people that get the biggest government subsidies and the biggest tax breaks uh, are and and allowed these loopholes where they don't have to pay and they can ship their money to the Caymans and they can ship the business to China. That's socialism (laughs) because that's done by the government. (laughs) Okay, when they get a break. They earned it. When you get a break, it's a fucking handout. Okay? It's the same break, just different magnitudes. All right? And, and it's capitalists who, who decide that socialism, this side is socialism, and the people they're not as rich as or as wealthy as, that's capitalism. And it's, it's a fucking lie. Uh, three, here's another group. A very small group of white supremacists who are assigned or are freelancing in disguise to cause disruption yeah. and destruction, as reported by the Minnesota police. They got one. They Q and A'd him, and he and he owns up. I'm here. I'm here because I know it will it will make it will make black people look bad. Four, right. and yeah. I got two more. Four armed militia who, in the middle of laying claim to protecting property, have wound up to perpetrating their version of vigilante justice, which we we saw in, which highlighted in the news last week. Seventeen year old kid. Um, I just see him as a white supremacist calling himself yeah. armed militia. I don't. I don't. Yeah. Dif- on I don't his worst day, he's just a dumb kid, and on his on his best day, he's 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 just a dumb kid, and on his worst day, he's a white supremacist. Um, five. Oh, four. Sorry, I skipped four, but I'll call four or five. People who claim to support BLM but clearly did not get the message about the nonviolent part. Some dude had a BLM tattoo on his neck, committed homicide, and, and said he did it in the name of BLM. When, If you look at their website, it clearly says uh, as of June this year and as of July, they c- repeatedly condemn, condemn violence in, in their protest. So there are some people that lay claim, just like white supremacists lay claim to being Trump supporters, Oh, but they're not all Trump supporters. The same way you have to look at BLM and some of these some and some of these extremist people. Now, out of the five people, I'm going to tell you who voted for who. One, Antifa. They're not voting for Biden. They're, they're, some of them are, but their 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 agenda is is nonpartisan. It is it is 
It is a statement through extremism and corporate establishment, uh, democratic, uh, um, what do you call them? Democratic, the Democratic, the DNC establishment and a lot of those mm -hmm. people is just as bad as the Republicans are. So they're not all voting for Biden. Two, no, op no, no. opportunists yeah. and looters who just see an opportunity to steal shit are not even registered to vote. <laughs> okay. Um, not voting. Uh, yeah. Three, white supremacist. Times have changed. I mean, they might have been Democrat in the 1800s, <laughs> but they're Republican now. <laughs> okay. Right. And the Democrat meant something different back then. Yes. Too. And the Republican Party, if you remember back then, was created to combat race racism. Which, mm -hmm. Again, times have changed. Um, two, yeah. uh, four, the people who incite in uh, violence in the name of BLM are, are not voting for Biden or Trump. You know, if they're paid protesters, they're taking the money. They, they, they have no, no party affiliation and some are just Democrats by convenience. But but that's not a huge turnout for Biden. And five, our militia group who were explicit, they were explicit in who they were voting for. That kid, if you look yeah. at videos, he was at every single Trump rally. He is Trump 2020 yeah, Trump. through and through. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so so, when people talk about, oh, liberals are causing all this violence, uh, Biden's supporting it, liberal this, liberal that, I want people to take a, an objective look and not lump all liberals in the same department the same way they want us activists to not lump all the police in the same category because of the acts of a few bad people. There's an overwhelming, overwhelming hypocrisy of what, I'll just say the Republican Party is asking people to believe based on the actions of a few and at the same time are supporting a department and a culture, as you as you ref refer to it as, uh, supporting a culture regardless of the acts of a few. It's cherry picking. It's it's a playing to an audience to to get votes. It's playing to the media for sweeps week so they can get paid. Because the more scared you are, the more you're watching their channel. So you could be scared more and eventually have a heart attack. You might you might think you have COVID. No, your heart's beating because you're scared to fucking death. So. Um, right. Your thoughts on, on my Fab Five, which ones you disagree with? Yeah. Well, I think it's a really interesting way to break it down, actually. I thought that was actually kind of cool. Um, my, let me think. Like, the way that you broke it down makes, makes sense to me. I guess I'm not sure if I believe that there are paid protesters. I don't either. Kind of I don't either. I but but even if they are. Like a rhetoric from. No, no, but even if you are, the person that's, that's, that's. Paying, being paid fifteen yeah, dollars an hour. Self-interest. Yeah, yeah, they're not. They, really. They're not gonna. They're not even like, registered to yeah. vote. <laughs> yeah, if you were gonna make assumptions about each of those groups that you created, I actually agree with the way that you would assign them. Mm -hmm. um, I do want to also like address. There's like something that you said about um, disagreeing, but not going to the name calling and making kind of like these blanket statements about entire groups. I agree with that up to a certain point, like in terms of like Trump and saying, you know, what he said about Mexicans and like, um, or, or being obvious uh, that he's racist and some people had their head in the sand. And you said that you've experienced that with some of your friends. I personally have not because I'm not friends with anyone who voted for Trump. I just, I didn't have any. No, friends. you're in a different, um, completely different zip code. I'm, I'm just, in a, yeah, I'm in a different kind of environment, but um and I, and I can understand that some people just don't know, but I still argue that that is racism, even though it's not active or conscious, because all white people are socialized to be racist, because we live in a racist society, and mm -hmm. racism is systemic. So you can still be racist without burning a cross or using the N-word or actively denying 
someone a job. Mm-hmm. It can happen in these microaggressions. So I think it's like people assume that racism only exists if you do it on purpose and that you are aware that you are doing it. And the fact that people don't know is actually proof of their white privilege to me. If we're talking about white people, it yeah. has to be like white adjacent people. There's a lot of anti-blackness within the Latinx community and there are white Latinos too that are freaking racist. You know what I'm saying? So it's not just exclusive to white Americans, but it's just like, to me, it's like that. Yeah. You might be able to raise the awareness of someone being like, Oh shit. I didn't realize that I wasn't thinking about this, but the fact that you didn't even have to think about it proves your privilege. Right? Because whiteness is the norm. Like you can go, I'm actually in a book club right now and it's all for adoptees, transracial adoptees. And we're only reading about racial justice and we're reading white privilege right now. Albeit that author has got like a controversy and she's been criticized about different things. I find it interesting because I kind of approach it from like an anthropological standpoint about like, oh, this is how white people talk to other white people. So I kind of feel like I'm a fly on the wall kind of um, seeing like, oh, okay. Pays to be mixed. How, uh, yeah. What would you say? Pays to be mixed. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I, mean, like, yeah, I feel like, like I'm a, a spy. I'm a spy for both yeah. races. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, but I, th- I think that like even not knowing or having your head in the sand is indicative of a larger systemic problem. And when it comes to disagreeing, I will disagree up to a certain point. There's a really wonderful James Baldwin quote, and I'm, I may not be using the exact words, but it's like we can agree to disagree or like we can disagree and still love each other as long as your disagreement is not rooted in my oppression and denial of my right to exist. So if, if, I, if yes. you haven't noticed something, I can maybe point that out to you and be like, but have you cons-? I'm also an educator. So like, there's that part of me that wants to be like, well, what about this? Have you considered this? Da-da-da-da-da. But if you're just coming in here telling me that like, you know, you don't, you know, that you don't think black lives matter, like at all, like matter, like that, you know, like at all, like apart from. The, or even worse, like all, all lives matter. But you know? that, mm-hmm. Yeah. I, yeah. Or you're like, wait, what'd you say? Sorry. Or, or worse, all lives matter. I mean, right. I mean di- as far as bad timing and sh- shitty timing is concerned, but go ahead. Yeah, and if, or if you're like not for queer rights or if you're you know, transphobic and these things, well, then I really don't have a conversation to have with you because you don't even think that like I should exist. You're basically saying that it's ego or hysteria or, you know what I mean? Like you're just completely negating my right to an argument because you don't even think that my identity is valid. So in that situation, I'm not going to engage. I'm gonna practice self-care and recognize that some people are gonna live and die by those beliefs, you know? And those are not the people that I think I'm ever gonna change anyway. It is maybe those people that are on the fence, that are unaware, but I still have to be selective in when I'm willing to educate and when I'm not. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause sometimes that's too draining, you know, well, and it's, it's just it's, about self-preservation. Do you know when it becomes draining? It becomes draining when like you're very good. And it's some, one of the things we have in common is we provoke thought by constantly posing a question. And if you're constantly posing a question, mm-hmm. you're constantly finding ways to answer these questions. And sooner or later, you're going to come to some kind of conclusion. Like you said, well, we, you agree to disagree or, you're like, okay, well, I didn't know that. I came out of this conversation with something new. You know, I agree with that part. Now, that one, that part, I think, I think he's full of shit. Um, but, right. but your exhaust, your exhaust, um, your exhaustion comes from. Eventually, all the answers are there, <laughs> and there's nothing left to ask. And you're like, okay, 
I, I can't. Yeah, I see where I you can't. stand. That it's like, I can't. You know, maybe. Yeah. 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 And that, I think but that that's also like. Yeah, and that's right, but that's the point I was getting to. This. Yeah. What I just did was open a, a whole new door to other questions, and I'm going to give you some definitions. Yeah. A bigot is someone who is set set in their ways, regardless of 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 um, it's how they're brought up and they're stubborn and they're set in a particular way, absent or present of information that, that contradicts such. Racism, mm. the inherent belief that someone is superior or inferior based on their race. White, but do you believe that black people can be racist or no? Hell, I don't. You have no idea how racist a black person could be when they see, until they see, until they see a mulatto. But see, no, I would call that bigotry. Because for, for me, the way as a sociology student, mm-hmm. also, like the, I define racism as like white people are not victims of racism. They are only benefits of it because mm-hmm. I can be, now that's not, I'm not saying that I can't be, like a black person can be anti-white. This is, this is, this is, the, uh, this is the definition of racism I assign to, okay? Yeah. I know that not everybody- But anti-white doesn't mean you think you're better or worse. You just, you just have a problem with white people. I don't think that's racist at all. Right. I think that's bigoted. But, but, right, so that's what I'm saying. I would see that as bigoted, but I don't see black people being racist because I also see racism as inherently anti-black. Um, and benefiting white people mm-hmm. that even if a black person is bigoted or prejudiced towards a white person, that's not necessarily turning the system on its head, No, you know? And, but and I, so, so for me, it's like a combination of, and for many people, a combination of power and privilege combined. Mm-hmm. Well, listen, and words have to be present. Words. The, the, the cool thing about racism as a term is that you're going to find words <laughs> No, the cool thing about racism as a term is you're going to find words over over decades and over centuries where the meaning gets yeah. twisted into either a slang or just a different yeah. meaning, right? Nigger got turned yeah. into nigger. Like NWA found a way to use it affectionately. You know, white people, you, you, you're trying to get your nigger on, you better do it in private, okay? You listen to it. You yeah, listen. Like, no, yeah, no, you no, listen no. to, um, I ain't saying she's a gold digger, but she ain't messing with no brook. Ha 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 ha. That's how you want to say yeah. it. All yeah. right? Yeah, you um, just laugh. Just the ha ha ha. Uh, um, as for, and, and, LBTQ rights, um, the word faggot. I grew up in New York City. Yeah. Faggot had nothing to do with being gay. It's like, you know, fuck you, man. You're acting like a faggot or this or that. And then, again, as time goes, we're more culturally aware. And you're like, okay, I'm grown now. I'm yeah, educated. I'm educated now. We don't use that word. And, and, in, and in the midst of decades and decades of words changing, the classic mm-hmm. definition of racism stays the same. The inherent belief that someone is superior or, or inferior based on their race. If a black person is oppressed to the point where he thinks, where even he thinks a white person's better, his mind is is racist infiltrated. I'm going to give you four words. He's internalized it. Yeah. I'm going to give you four four terms that show you a black person can be racist. Wigger. <laughs> white nigger. Zebra. Oreo cookie. You're fucked up. You're fucked up. You don't know what you want to be. That no, that is belittling someone and showing them how inferior or insufficient they are because they both they happen to be both black and white. And when a black person does that, Rachel, there's no there's no educator in the world that's going to tell you that that's not racist. That's racist. Period. Actually, I would argue. I know. I know a lot of yeah, anti-racist workers that would never say that any black person can be racist. That's. I'm not saying that's right that they do that. I mean, I've also heard those things. Like, I'm also, <laughs> you know, like. I th- the same and I thought you'd appreciate that because you're. You're. I mean, 
I'm going to yeah, put a I'm, look on, on the podcast. Um, I'm going to have your heading. I'm going to have like what you're about. <laughs> and I'm definitely going to put everything you're about because ain't as far as mulattoes are concerned of being being a little everything. I don't think there's anyone oh, better. Yeah. Than and they call me that, they, yeah. And they, they call me that. And when I go to Cuba, too, like they also use like, the, you know, they use the term like maricon, which is also yeah. means. And they think it's funny. Very casually. I personally don't like it. Yeah. But it's a little behind in terms of like where we are in terms of trying to use, be, be a little more cognizant about language and what we use casually. But I would like what you're saying in terms of like, especially what's, what's addressed towards like biracial folks or like other black folks. I'm not saying that black people cannot be prejudiced towards other groups, but in the larger, I'm still, I'm, I'm always going to defer to that that system, that larger system in place. No, collectively, you know, racism, I got to agree with race you. Race was also invented by white people, right? But racism has become real because even though race in itself is a is, is technically a social a, a construct, right? Like our race is technically human, but racism, the very this invention, the oppressions and the violence because of it are very, very, very much real. Yeah, right. On a system, so listen. Still, on a systematic I would still push level, back against you on that. On a systematic level, if you push back. I ain't going to cover up. I'm going to take that on no, the chin because everything you're saying is not wrong. Um, right. I, I think we're just think, defining it differently. I think I got a little bit more acutely uh, as far as acute awareness is concerned and, and, and what someone would call, some would call a smaller scale that is heavily overlooked because in this country, there's no, I don't think there's a whole lot of pure anything anymore. I know pure. Yeah, what is you know, purity? Even yeah, mean, what the hell is right? even pure Puerto Rican? It's a mixture of three different things. I learned from yeah, you. Yeah. <laughs> I learned from yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. I learned from yeah, you yeah. the difference between Hispanic and Latina. How about that? A kid that grew up <laughs> in a very diverse uh, 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 neighborhood, Flatbush Avenue, Brooklyn. Yeah. Just how yeah. to how to. You know, I live in Flatbush right now. I'm I'm actually like right by. <laughs> where? Right? I'm on. I, I'm I live in Flatbush. Close right to right where now. though? Now, don't give me an exact address. I'm, Close to where? Yeah, Close I'm, to Empire I'm like Boulevard. Flatbush Ave. I'm not too far from East 21st. Okay, that's East Flatbush. Cool. I was yeah, yeah. three blocks from Empire Boulevard. I lived on. I grew up on a cul-de-sac. Um, yeah, yeah. So basically, so basically, where you I live, where you live now, where I used to live, yeah. I guess Erasmus yeah, yeah. High School is, is is what's in the middle on Church Avenue. But um, yeah. very very important for you for me to acknowledge on a systematic level and on a big scale. Um, I agree with you. But I, I, I needed to, I desperately needed to mention that because our president's black, but he's also white, right? I am, I am black, but I am also white. For the first 18 right. years of my life, I grew up, Flatbush Avenue is an all black neighborhood. Before that, I lived in Coney yeah. Island, Cary Gardens. Not to be confused with Carroll Gardens, people. Carroll Gardens, totally different from Cary Gardens and Coney Island, all right? right? Yeah, you ain't got no projects there, okay? You don't have a group of roaches that can't be stomped, exterminated, or beat down, okay? Uh, they will survive. You, you don't have place, you don't, you don't live in a place where the rent is 400 and you still can't afford it, okay? So, um, mm -hmm. for most of my life, I identify with being black. But it's only because yeah. if you grow up in the neighborhood and you live in the neighborhood long enough, you become numb to the racial slurs. And two, after a while, everyone, everyone's, that's, that's Jason. <laughs> He's black. He's just a light-skinned brother. So yeah. there are large people out there that have an identity crisis because they're direct multiracial multi descendants that I urge, that I, I strongly am plural that deserves its intention attention um but what is con but is constantly ignored because of the assertion that we have the best of both worlds 
Bullshit. Bullshit. I went to an all-white school. They didn't want to touch me because they they turned black. I went to an all-black school. I was I was I was running for my life just to get from my house to 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 school with an armed with an yeah. incredible Hulk lunchbox. You know why? Because the black racist mind looks at me and says, "I don't have time to dice up my white people. You have black, have white. You a cracker. You're Romanian. You're Romanian cracker." So so I I push back on maybe on a smaller scale even though I, I i can't deny the 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 big on the bigger scheme of things why you said what you said but it's very yeah. very important that um and i feel like i'm repeating them i didn't i mean to thump it in twice you know just so i could get the last word i feel like an idiot but um because i'm no, so no, but that, because i'm so passionate about it um yeah. because and it's also your personal like, like this shit is mm-hmm. personal too it's like yes. lived experience and also mm-hmm. trying especially when you're multiracial or you're mm-hmm. biracial like that is a really that is a really com- complex line to 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 navigate, you know, especially looking at the way that you do. Too. It Probably really makes me believe in God. And they're like, what are you? Like, I've had people do this with me, mm-hmm. too. Like, what are you? Where you're are like, you I'm from? American. Which, which... I just would call it. I you're would like, I'm a girl from the Bronx. Yeah, I would just call. I just I just use I would. I just call those actions as um as prejudice or bigotry or anti-whiteness or things like that, because I don't disconnect it from the larger system. Yeah. No, I get that. But I think we both agree. Like, I think maybe it's, maybe it is semantics, but it's also like how I'm defining it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, and it's also yeah. important to know that um, before I say, get, get on to the next subject, I believe in God. Yeah. My, me being bi- biracial made me believe in God because there is a strong mm. thing in my head that if I was born white, or black, I'd, I'd probably be a racist. <laughs> probably what? I'd probably be a racist <laughs> if I wasn't born both, where the, oh, the, where the, the level of fairness is not only instilled but imperative. Uh, my fear is, if I was a white guy that grew up in an all-black neighborhood, I would think black people just have a problem with white people. Or if I went to that right. all-white yeah. school and I was dark, I was a few shades darker. I'd right. be like, oh my God, everything people were saying about white people is true. I can't stand yeah. white people. And like you said, it's not, not a, on a systemic level, it's not racist against white people, but definitely prejudiced and discriminatory and, and on, a hard yeah. line, on a hard line bigoted. Um, so that's one thing I wanted to get out of the way. The second thing is... Interesting. The second thing is, I really like... The thing I like about you is that symbolism is one thing. Uh-huh. Um, activism is another. Mm-hmm. Right, like you can say you're for this, and you can put symbols on on your Facebook profile, and you can do this, and you can have BLM a BLM T-shirt, and right. that doesn't hurt the cause either. Right, but visibility like, is important. But I always tell extent, people yeah. to be very careful uh, what they what they're calling activism. Um, for example, right. yeah. when when I was, I could say, you know, I'm for the the wrongful imprisonment of African American people, right? Um, or I can actually go out there and just at, at least once just experience, just talk to some people who are arrested or whatever, this and that. When I was 16 years old, I was part of Coney Island Gospel Assembly in Brooklyn. And I was too young to be in it, but I was part of the prison ministries. You have to be, a, first of all, you have to be a man, which is sexist, and you have to be 18 or over. But I was 16 and I was doing prison ministries at Rikers Island uh, once a uh-huh. month and Brooklyn House of Detention. So basically twice a month, one time a piece. And basically you just... I, 
any anyone that wants to talk about God, we can talk about God. Anyone that that wants to talk about, I'm not as deeply religious anymore, but I still I'm still a Jesus freak. But um, mm-hmm. anyone that wants to talk, <laughs> no. But if you want to talk about sports, we can talk about sports. You want to talk about, right. you know, what you did to get in here is not a good, <laughs> how it's not a good fucking idea. We could talk about that. So, um, that would be an example of activism. Go in there, feel it out. Um, and if it's your thing, and if you can do it, and if you're not. And if you're to, if you're to a point where you can where you can go all day and do this, then that's who you are and be an activist. Because there are some people mm-hmm. they want to be an activist, but it's not who they are, and they will die. They'll sacrifice 20, 20 years of their life dying for a cause that they believe in when they could have lived twenty or thirty more years. And that's and that's also a choice, right? That's an, an honorable yeah. choice, right? I believe John Lewis mm-hmm. probably would have. Believe it or not, I think John Lewis probably would have lived longer. You know, God rest that man's soul. You know. Um, mm. And the thing I like about you, bringing it back to you, is you put something on your Facebook profile that might say something about racial and racial injustice, but you're also practicing the artistic expression that promotes equal rights on a black and white scale, on a gay, gay, lesbian, trans, queer scale. I'm not going to do acronyms anymore. I just suck it. I'm just going to say the whole word. Um, yeah. And... I, I'm glad I'm glad to have you on this show because one I know people are not going to be posting live because we just went, we just went a whole bunch of directions that made people scared to even who want to be first. <laughs> well, maybe I should tell maybe I should tell her this. <laughs> delete, 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 delete. <laughs> You're like, oh no, which emoji do? How do I respond to this? Um, and it's weird for me to break character because I mean sometimes I play a character on my podcast. And, yeah. and I'm breaking character a little bit, talking about the production and, and what I want to do with this podcast eventually. It's just to provoke thought. Yeah. And if you, if I'm going to say I, I want to provoke thought um, on all facets, not just sports, but in politics, on current events, yeah. in entertainment, in health and wellness. Mm-hmm. I had uh, Catherine mm-hmm. Parent. I don't know if you saw that episode. She um, she has a company that helps improve, improve vaccines and medications for the FDA. So... She's part of Ebola's, wow. Ebola's phase one team. And now, so, so, you know, that's health and wellness. So I, I, if, I, if I am to be this person that I want to be, it would be podcast malpractice to not have you on this episode. Oh, thank you. <laughs> it would that's be very, podcast very malpractice. And I told you this is only be an mm. hour or two. Look, 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 look what I did. You got honey dick. No, it's fine. You got no, honey dick. You got, you got hoodwinked, dude. You got bamboozled. <laughs> <laughs> No, I think it's great. I think it's important. And I appreciate it too. You know, yeah. I appreciate being here and that you asked me to, to come and talk. Um, and I promise I want to wrap up, but again, this would be malpractice if I didn't ask you this general question yeah. that, that I've asked all of my actor friends. Was there a particular play in high school or college um, where you left the performance or you left the, the, the group of shows where you left the stage or that venue or that last show saying, I can do this for real. This is who I am. Actually, I'll rephrase that. At what moment or what show or what production, however young you were, when you when, that you left, when everybody was like, when, when you told yourself, this is who I am, this is me on the real, and this is what I want to do when I grow up. <clears throat> it's an interesting question because I don't think I can... <clears throat> Acting isn't the only thing I do, nor is it the only thing I want to do. 
Um, Do you want me to rephrase the question? Sure. (laughs) You're a singer. You're a poet. Mm -hmm. You're a theater performer. You're a film actor. All of these, to the lazy person, falls under the general blanket of uh, performance and entertainment, which you Mm -hmm. have transcended into activism. If you weren't doing activism stuff, you have enough talent to just do mainstream stuff, and your talent can is enough to beat everybody, beat everybody to the ground. I, I, there are people who are making millions of dollars that don't even come close to you right now. So my question, was there a particular per- stage performance, a song? Was there a particular poem? Was there a particular theater performance where you left saying, um, expressing myself through art is what I want to do when I grow up? Was it fucking A? Yeah, it probably was. Yeah, I think it was fucking A. Because I think it was, a, it was, it's kind of like fucking A and then also like doing um, the Black and Latino Student Association. We also had a, 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 an open mic. We had a slam, a poetry slam, like around the same time. I think it's like kind of like juxt- those two things. I was doing a lot of po- poetry and spoken word. And I saw the connection between theater and like political theater that actually like talks about real issues and is very creative in the way that it brings people in and tells these stories. And so I think if anything, I'm a storyteller because I'm also, I very much identify with being an arts educator, which is something I came to later in life, but it's all, I'm a storyteller, you know? And I think fucking, I had a big, had, had a, a, had a lot to do with that because I realized I could tell stories in different ways and stories that really mattered and that had, that were relevant and that weren't just escapism, um, which I'm personally not very interested in all the time. Um, though I understand the, like the need for it. Uh, so I think that fucking game and working on like the August Wilson, like you act, you know, it's kind of like that whole experience that we had together. Like I also, was in the, you know, yeah, the, 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 yeah the, 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 the scenes when we did the August Wilson tribute, I did a scene from Jitney and like being exposed to all these black playwrights and realizing all these stories that I hadn't been exposed to up until that point. And then still being able to like write on my own and like share that like after school at night, you know, <laughs> it's kind of, it was kind of like those two things combined. Um, yeah. And then, and then I'm actually going to add something to it because, you know, I wasn't an educator when we were in school yet. And when I started doing that, you know, a few years back, the first time I went into a classroom, I was, you know, I also worked for a theater development fund. And so I was shadowing another teaching artist um, before I could start teaching my own residencies. And I remember going into the classroom and thinking in my head, I have to keep doing this in some way for the rest of my life. Like in some way I have to always be with young people and in the classroom and like talking about art, like whatever it is and bringing it to them. And it's not even necessarily to like make them be actors when they're older or whatever, but just seeing how the arts can be a part of their lives and help them tell their stories or process them or, or bring them together or start conversations, you know? Um, and being an educator also helped me learn to love myself more, which also I think informed the way I make my art. So like I promised myself in front of these kids that like I wouldn't pretend to be something I'm not because I was always a very insecure child and very, and like, and it was just 
I was always just too worried about what other people thought about me. And I was just like, well, if there's like a little Rachel in here somewhere that's like suppressing this or afraid of this or nervous about that. I just want to show them if they think I'm like that weird teaching artist that comes in, um, but is totally being themselves. Like that's worth it. Like that's worth being vulnerable and being a little different, being a little weird. Like I'm not going to pretend to be something I'm not. I'm not going to condescend to these young people because if I can just show one person by being who I am and if I can be an example, like, okay, my work is done. Like life fulfillment, inspire a young person to be themselves. Like that's what it's all about. Um, like that's why I do yeah. most of the things I do. As far as practicing <laughs> what you preach is concerned, um, on a smell scale, just just in college alone, like the Rachel Perez that everyone knew and or just looked at or observed or talked to before you did the musical and before you did Rachel, um, before you did fucking A. Yeah. And the, uh, the people who were your friend then before that and the people who wanted to be your friend after that <laughs> is m as mind blowing as it is not relevant because you were loyal and affectionate to the people that were with you that were your friend before that. And I, I, I that's so cool. I mean, listen, you're going to make friends you never knew that never that even never knew you. But yeah. in the theater world where where um people just thumb their nose and all of a sudden you do something good, they want to be your friend. <laughs> I think you're really good at recognizing that too. <laughs> yeah, I don't rem I don't remember anybody who I don't remember any new people that wanted to be my friends. I just Yeah. I just think that we had like a really great group at the yeah. time. And, well, um, the conversations I had. It makes me I, want to have a reunion too. I like yeah. I miss people. I haven't kept it like I haven't kept in touch with everybody. Well, I fell in love with your year. I still hold them. I fell in love with your yeah. year. I, I I was the year yeah. before you, but clearly yeah, the the, the this these talented classes are like heavyweight boxing champions. They come like once every ten years, every fifteen years. <laughs> where like everyone, whether you're BA or BFA, was awesome. Like James Smith the third is doing his yeah. Netflix thing. Um, Vladimir yep. Versailles, man. Every time I turn on my TV, yep. I'll, I'll watch a film, he's in it. Um, I know. <laughs> um, Chris Bascianelli is a motivational speaker, a traveling motivational speaker. Yeah. Me, mm -hmm. I'm a savage volleyball coaching commentator, you know. Matt Dumont, helping people to prepare for law school. He's going to law school now. Um, Pam I know, Price, I know, I Pam Price, that. dancer, you know. Um, yep. Just this, this, and magazine editor. Yeah, like, Seth members. Amazing uh, athlete, yeah. yeah um, God, I can go on and on. Just people that had small roles and big roles in that. Eugene Jones went straight to film, you know, and straight yeah. straight to, um, like you said, straight theater performance. So, um, love what you, uh, before I go, love what you said about white privilege. And the diff, um, but I, but I wanted to point out um, someone's story. My friend Kathy Parent, the, the vaccine um, approval specialist and lab rat. Mm -hmm basically said for years she didn't think she had white privilege because mm. she didn't understand what it meant like there's mm -hmm. white privilege people who are just oblivious and then the people that take white privilege saying that that just because you didn't work as hard meaning they didn't work hard at all so then there's a group of white people that take exception right. to this and then this is cool and you'll love what she said because she she brought it back she said look uh, you know me for 25 years, Jason. You've known me when I was broke. You know me when I, I didn't have any money. I earned every fucking penny I had. I, did, I wasn't given to me. I wasn't privileged. And she said that was my level of thinking before. And she said my level of thinking now is if, whether that's right or that's, that's wrong, there's a privilege that extends to that. Like if I go to a party on the Upper East Side 
and I got to go walk to the Upper West Side to get home and I walk through the park. I mean, I'm not going to get stopped by the cops. I'm not going to get profiled. I'm not going to have light shine in my face, you know, just for walking yeah. while black. So she understood. She, she started to slowly learn that there's levels to white privilege. Like, and yeah. and she's like her message out there. She's like, nobody's saying you, you didn't work hard, you dumb shit. <laughs> you know, right. nobody said you didn't have to run the 100 meter dash. They're just saying that some people's starting block for the 100 meter dash might be 120 meters <laughs> maybe that right. person's block is 150 meters yeah. you know and, and, and i think sometimes the oh sorry no that's you caught on you caught on to what yeah, i, I think yeah. also sometimes the word privilege may not even be as fully encompassing as it could be like you can also replace the word privilege with like it's more beneficial or it's safer to be white yeah. in our society you know it's not yeah i think that that's really sometimes people don't understand what it means like by privilege you can be you know you can be poor right but like poor white people still kind of know that they're like a, a rung above it's not intended but but it's not intended to demean it's not intended to demean it's just an observation it's right. not it's not intended yeah. to thumbs down or thumbs up anything you think lebron james don't have a privilege like him threatening to boycott the rest of the postseason, he's part of the elite few that can afford that. 60% of the NBA got big, more money, more problems. They got big bills to pay. Yeah. They couldn't afford I mean, those that. So LeBron, so, so there's a lot of black activists going to be like, LeBron, how dare you? LeBron James has a privilege too. Yes, he does, because the privilege as a term is not intended to demean or, or, or exalt. It is a, 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 an a an self honest observation generated by historical fact. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Did I exhaust you yet? It's two hours. It's almost, it I, is I know. one hour, 51 minutes. I feel like I think about this and talk about this stuff like all the time. Yeah. But it's, <laughs> I think it's important for us. Like there's some conversations where, you know, it's like, why, Jason, why are you even talking about this? I already know that we have listeners that don't know that. Yeah, we do. Yeah. We have yeah, yeah, yeah. people, um, you have people that follow you. Uh, from a big zip code and different zip codes and different walks of life. Me, I feel like the international man of mystery. I got hoes in different area codes, as the song goes. So, so this, like our interpretation of white privilege, I'm, I'm telling you, there's people that live in Manhattan Beach and Hermosa Beach that probably never thought of it that way. You know, sometimes yeah. um, they're. Um, we talk about racial justice, and and I I just pointed out um, how a black person can be racist and why you disagree. Nobody's thought yeah. of that before. And and you, you are the educator. And you're not trying to spoon feed recycled data and received opinions to the, to the people you're trying to educate. What are you trying to do? You're, mm -hmm. try, you're trying to get them to pose the question because through that, all the way up to when they get older and they look back through retrospective action, they become better versions of themselves. Yeah, and it's also Hopefully. critical thinking too. Like even when I go into classes mm -hmm. and we're talking about a piece of theater, I tell the young people, I make sure, I said, I actually want to know your opinion and we do not have to disagree and if something makes you feel uncomfortable that's okay the one thing i do do expect is that you know if we do have a disagreement is that we're still going to talk to each other respectfully and then the only time i draw the line on even having or entertaining a disagreement is like that james baldwin quote unless it's rooted in my oppression and the denial of my right to exist if you don't even think i i deserve to have an opinion well then obviously we cannot have a conversation you know and i'm going to choose my battle you're just out of questions right sometimes you just yeah. sometimes you just run out of questions it's just like yeah oh. yeah but with young people and with anybody it's really like I'm, I'm hoping you know 
that you, you, you ask things, like dare to question the way that you were raised, dare to question the information that you're received, like, and, and dare to imagine like new ways of, of relating to yourself and to other people. Yeah. And for sure, stop falling victim to these, these terms that are hijacked by po- political leadership. And this is the Democratic Party and, and Republican Party, right? Well, the two-party white, system is like... White privilege is... faulty system. <laughs> but, right, no, but, but basically someone hears a story and they're like, wait a second, let me go to Fox, let me see what they have to say, and that's going to be my opinion. This person's like, let me go to MSNBC, see what they have to say, because they're always right, and that's going to be my opinion. And, and that's where I think people just grow further apart, because their opinions are received and not... Um, and the terms people use, white privilege... Um, um, BLM and violence or this and that um, are, in, are embedded in people's head where they hear the term they're automatically supposed to hear something like white privilege we just said it's not even it's not even like uh, something to exalt or, or demean <laughs> it's just it's 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 an yeah, observation I like, yeah <laughs> isn't I mean so that and that's important to have these conversations and educate our our, our, um, our youth did I take are we exhausted yet <laughs> she's <laughs> she's like you're old boy i could go all day <laughs> no i am a little hungry yeah oh yeah Ooh, wow you I'm just do you just miss lunch <laughs> oh no, dude no, i'm all good it's all good all right cool Let's i'm always um, craving a cheeseburger at some point in the day be- before we wrap up another term i wanted to talk about was defund the police like, yeah. there's one party that thinks, oh, you just want to get rid of the police. And there's one party that says, no, we want to um, just cut their funding here and here and here and here. And then everybody else, everybody else in the middle thinks like, if you think defunding the police is like getting rid of the police, you're a fucking idiot. You're crazy. No, de- defunding the police, I think, in my interpretation, is allocating resources to where the police can be, um, where you can change the culture in the system. And I think it could be changed in two ways. One, their training has to be more extensive. You know, bring in, bring in police psychologists, bring in um, out, out of um, like out of system, out of their system psychologists. Um, put it, put it into their training. Put it, their training. Should, honestly, their training should be a year, at least a year, in my opinion. Um, two, don't defund their salaries. Make the salaries more competitive so smarter and more educated people will want the job instead of them hiring people that they don't fully vet just to meet a quota. Like right now, the starting salary for an NYPD officer and a juggling clown are the same thing. So um, throwing money at a problem is not the answer. The allocation of, mm-hmm. of, of, of resources is 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 to me is the common denominator va in new york the james peter center is awesome the va out here in la is an absolute fucking mess they have the same amount of money Mm. allocation of resources mismanagement of of said resources to me i don't think the police should be defunded in the sense where they should Less money should go out. Of it. I say, I don't even think more money should go out. Of it. I say, take the same money and whoever's lining their fucking pockets, you know, because be- the police get co- huge contributions by people too that go into their salaries and they go into performance bonuses and all that stuff. Let's take some of that money, let's hire, let's recruit educated people. And we recruit those educated people and we train them and we, edu- we give them a second education on how they're supposed to conduct themselves on the street. You're not a fucking sentry. You're the ser- a servant of the people. Hermosa Beach Police Department is awesome. 
<laughs> you know why? Because they know everybody's name. The homeless guy who's picking in garbage cans, they know that's Walter. They know my name. And when you know someone's name, you don't identify them as a possible perpetrator. You, you identify them as someone, you're drunk. Okay, you're spending the night in jail. <laughs> That's Greg. I'm a, you know, or maybe, maybe there's a kid that commits, that commits a crime. You might take him to jail, but you, call his, you at least call his mother. And now you're doing better policing right. because you don't see everyone as, as your fucking enemy. You don't see everyone, particularly African-Americans, uh, you don't see them as a piece of shit. If you see someone as a piece of shit, it's easier to choke them out. If you see someone that's not even human, it's easier to put your knee on their neck and be like, if he dies, he dies. You know, funny, but not, but not funny. Um, so that's where I think the funding and uh, I, I, I mean, the training has to be better. In the 80s, chokeholds were not banned because chokeholds, if you do it right, the blood flow, the carotid artery cuts the flow to the brain and they take an uncomfortable nap. But if they're bigger than you, that's the best way to do it. But when you put your hand across someone's throat, what happens right. is they exhale, but they're not, they're not allowed to take in air. When Eric Garner was saying, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. Right, less and less and less. He can't take air in. So he said, I can't breathe mm -hmm. four times. All of that was done in the exhale because the application of the chokehold is, is the result of death by asphyxiation, which is what happened mm -hmm. to um, Floyd, I believe, in, in, in Minnesota. So if you don't train someone to chokehold, then of course you're going to use your nightstick that's going to cause permanent damage. You're going to use a taser that caused permanent damage. Or you might just, you, you might just shoot, shoot them in the back because in your racist mind, because you see everyone as a piece of shit, you assume he's going for a gun. That's an example. And, and what I'm saying is very controversial because now everyone's going to be like, oh, Jason's saying you should choke people out. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying as an no, example no. of training and why right. certain things are, are, are banned or whatever and this and that. And... God, I meant for us to just break after to see you could eat, but um, I wanted your 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 take to push back, yeah, to push back or not on defunding the police. Yeah. Um. So we actually don't see totally eye to eye on this either. Um. Right. I agree in the sense of, I think you know, in terms of reducing harm with the system that's currently in place, there are a lot of things that should be changed and improved. But Black Lives Matter actually is for the abolishment of the police. And I am as well. I wasn't always. Um, I understand that people can make the arguments that like there are good cops and that there are some people that know the names and like have you know positive relationships. And I'm not, um, I'm not like disputing that. I also recognize that in New York City, especially, a lot of folks um, don't live in the very boroughs and locations that they are policing. Like many people move up to the Hudson Valley, move out to Long Island, move to New Jersey, and yet they're still um, yelling Compton, but they move to Riverside. <laughs> yeah, like they're still policing neighborhoods where they're not even a community member. There's no connection there. And yeah, there are a lot of those. I agree with all of your criticisms and like in terms of like training and everything like that. What I would say is I'm going once again to this lar to that larger system is looking at the argument, the way it was first described to me when I first came across like abolitionist thought, thought and I'm talking about abolition in the sense of like abolishing the police, mm -hmm. is that if it's spoiled at the root, what comes from it, is it ever really going to be like, like, is it going to really bear fruit, you know? And looking at the source of how police were, the police in this country were created as an extension of, you know, slave patrols 
and that that mentality and that system and that white supremacy is just like in uh, like an inherent aspect of police training that it's about like yes reout like taking them like that money and reallocating it to like other areas like you know to support communities like mental health on all of these things but also replacing it with something else that's not called police that's not this thing with this violent history and rooting and it's not an easy or quick fix I do think personally in the meantime anything that can be done to reduce harm or improve training should be done but the ultimate goal is still to not even need police in the first place and to replace it with another system that prioritizes community care that policing can be null and void and that there are other ways that we can protect and support one another so so there so yeah I, I push back a little bit like I do and like what I've read and what I've you know also even in the Black Lives Matter like there was I remember there was an op-ed like several months ago that was like yes actually we do mean abolish the police but I think what people don't understand is like um, also understanding that that's also meant to be a very strategic and methodical process that doesn't happen overnight and do do i think it will happen i don't know can i hope can i dream can i try to reduce harm in whatever realm that i feel like i have power yeah but i actually am for abolishing the police <laughs> no your reasoning is logical is, is as logical as mine is uh look i have a friend a bunch of friends that are pro second amendment because uh the police and this these are republicans okay i have republican friends that want to exercise their right to to, to bear arms be it just self-defense or 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 maybe this guy one of my one of my crazy friends because i have friends that have crazy ideas he wants a fucking cannon mm -hmm. i don't know <laughs> he wants a cannon by his front door because oh, no because of the system of policing so democrats oh, aren't the only ones that have yourself. a problem with policing policing is not about crime prevention right now Policing is about um, we can't do anything until someone commits the crime and then we come with like, Rachel, let's say you're my wife, right? Um, mm -hmm. And someone's threatening your life and you go to the police and you're like, this guy's threatening my life. And they're like, well, okay, well, we right. need to see bruises. We need something to happen before we can do something. This right. person ends, ends up shooting you. Cops knock on my Not door. Yeah. yeah, the cop knocks on my door. We got good news and bad news, Jay. The good news is we caught the guy that shot Rachel. <laughs> and I'm like, and the bad news? Well, yeah. Rachel you know in order for us to catch exactly. him he someone had to do the killing and yeah. and this is why you see me on social network one day i look like i'm a i'm, I'm i have things that the right wing uh cosigns or whatever and and i have things that the left wing cosigns with i i do will not refute or argue anyone that wants to own a gun for personal protection if the mm -hmm. police um and, and the way that they do policing is predicated on the commission of crime has to happen first. I don't mm -hmm. want people to die. <laughs> you know, I, I, you ain't going to see me out there with an AR driving to another state. You know, I have a three-year-old daughter. I, I'm not going to wait. I'm, you're not going to see me. Uh, if she turns 17 and says, I want to go across the state with a, with, a, with an AR to protect homes, I'll beat the shit out of her. <laughs> All right? I'll spend the night. I'm going to spend the night. I'm like, you want someone to go to jail? You ain't going to jail for, for um, being a minor. Uh, open and carry doesn't apply to minors, okay? Because people are like, oh, open and carry is legal. The kid's 17, 
not to minors. So they could shut up about that. But I would rather right. spend a night in jail whooping my daughter's ass than her out there uh, killing somebody else or someone who feels threatened by her that might shoot her first, you know? Right. So, mm -hmm. I mean, and it's just, it's just about how the news is produced, Rachel, right? When I first saw that video, the, the, the one video, I thought it was self-defense because I saw the guy on top of him had a gun. But then I thought to myself, if the guy on top of him had a gun, it's not self-defense because the guy on top of him that had a gun could have just shot him. He had an elevated position. He had a, 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 a handgun instead of a rifle that he didn't have to swing around and shoot him. He could have shot that kid uh, in the back running the other direction. So to me, it's not self-defense because the guy that was armed that was over him was clearly not trying to kill him. He had a, the guy had a gun and chose not to kill him. So it's not self-defense. The threat seems imminent. But the guy's looking at him like, if I wanted to kill you, you'd be dead. And he basically just said, oh, yeah, pop, pop, pop. So, so now, considering the other videos that happened before that, he'd already, he was running because he already shot someone in the head mm -hmm. who, who allegedly threw a Molotov cocktail at him. So you throw a bottle at me, I'm going to put a bullet in your head, which is already uh, uh, traumatically st stupid for a 17-year-old. I mean, so... Again, it's how the news is produced because my unbiased mind, I see, I see that, that one video and only that one video. I don't give a fuck if you're a Democrat or Republican. That's self-defense. And then I see close-ups. And the guy who's actually making an argument for self-defense is the one that pointed out the other guy had a gun. So I'm like, wait a second. You're making an argument for self-defense, but the other guy that had a gun is above him and didn't, and didn't, and didn't kill him, could have killed him. Could have shot him in the back. Could have, could have shot him execution style a while on top of him. Had the means of doing it. Had an elevated, elevated position. And, if, they, and yeah. if it was really self-defense, and I'm ranting right now, why the fuck didn't he turn himself into the police? And, and that same video I was watching that I re-examined beyond my first take, um, he's walking to the police, hands up, not to surrender, hands up to identify himself as a non-hostile. Because people were saying, oh, he was trying to surrender to the police. He wasn't doing that. In that video, he had both hands up with his AR-15 here and, and ident to identify himself as a non-hostile. Because if, Rachel, if you're giving yourself up, what do you do? What do you do with that gun around your neck? Say it with oh, me. Oh, you have to put it down. Don't you say it down? <laughs> you drop yeah, the you fucking lay. thing. So, yeah, you don't. You disarm. Yeah. So, so his behavior connected to... been there. Like, there are other people that, like, uh, was I read an article where... His mother drove him there. Even, come, even people that had come close to the cop cars prior to that, just protesters, were being, like, hit with rubber bullets and shit. And then he's just walking around with a gun. They're just like, oh, no, like, that's fine. Like, and on the video, like, you can hear him... Like, you can hear people screaming. Like, it's just... You can hear people screaming, he shot someone, to the police. <laughs> it's, the same, it's the same old, it's just like, it's the same old argument of like racist white America justifying its actions over and over and over again. It's just and they're coming out of the, it's just a version of 2020. Yeah. Like, you know, you know what I mean? Like you, it's, 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 it's nothing new. It's just recycled and it's just exhausting because we just see it ad nauseum on social media and now people are trying to like, debate the minutia of this i don't i'm not even interested in that in like i'm not even interested in that no. because he shouldn't have been there at all that shouldn't even be legal to carry that and and i've seen black people killed for far less so i'm not even interested in this yeah. i'm not interested in that i'm not interested in the character. conversation because i fired my first gun when i was 12 years old a 22 mm -hmm. rifle um, and then i kept going back to the range twice a year and i ended, and I ended up firing every single weapon on on that range, 
at Target. Mm -hmm. Okay, my father mm -hmm. used to hunt. You're hunting for animals. Mm -hmm. um, some people mm -hmm. have a problem with that, but to me, if you hunt for your animals and you kill your own venison and you got a freezer, they can go. They can go kick rocks because you're doing what we, what humans have been doing since the beginning of time. Yeah. All I right? grew up around a yeah. lot of so, a lot of hunting. I, just, I grew up in Hudson Valley. There but were a I, lot of hunters. But I think yeah. the point I was trying to make, just because your kid knows how to shoot a gun, there's a huge difference between shooting at a target. And asking them to put themselves in harm's way. A seven, who's a seventeen-year-old who's not even fully psycho, psychological developed, psychologically developed, not even smart enough to be a racist, <laughs> not even smart enough to be a racist. <laughs> you know. Well, I would, I would, just, I would disagree with that because I think he's a racist. I don't care that he's seventeen. I'm sure he. You have to be carefully taught. It's like from this, from the musical South Pacific. You yep. have to be carefully taught. No kid is like, like that kid. You know, maybe when he grows up, you know, he he'll have a change of heart. I don't know. Yeah. But I don't. I don't see him as. I'm not. I'm not going that he's that innocent. That he's not smart enough. To Let know me tell you something. Shouldn't be fucking shooting people and walking around with fucking gun. Yeah, but there are people listening to this episode saying, "Thank you, girl." <laughs> I'm just like I'm not. I'm not interested in what his character is because nobody gives a shit when it's a 12 year old playing in their backyard. Yeah. But you have a white kid with a gun shooting people, and you're still trying to defend him. And all, and then we're we're trying to defend why someone should be able to walk with fucking skittles or have their hoodie up. I don't fucking care what you have to say. Let's focus on the uh, racism, racism, racism. You're racist. I don't give a shit. It's the same fucking argument. Do you know what the crazy thing Are is? You, be about change or don't. Be actively anti-racist or go fuck yourself. Let That's me, how I feel. Let me read you a quote. And, and right now, I got, I, got, <laughs> I got about four minutes left on this podcast before we just, reach, before we just run out of tape. Um, before we break the internet. Um, <laughs> yeah, right? Um, what's his name? Chadwick Boseman. Yes. Okay. Played Jackie Robinson. Played Thurgood Marshall. Played all of these prominent roles. And oddly Amazing. enough, the most prominent role out of all of these true life characters, the most prominent role he played was a fictional character. Did so, yeah. so well. There were people out there that thought Wakanda was a place. <laughs> okay. Yeah, um, and, yeah. Like, when can we go? <laughs> and at the end of the movie, you know how Avengers like to do something after the credits? The yeah. end of the movie, he goes to the UN. And he says this, and I put this on my Facebook profile. Wakanda is yeah. no longer, Wakanda will no longer watch from the shadows. We cannot. We must not. We will work to be an example of how we as brothers and sisters on this earth should treat each other. Now more than ever, illusions of division threaten our existence. We know the truth. More connects us than separates us. But in times of crisis, the wise build bridges and the foolish build barriers. We must find a way to look after one another as if we are one single tribe. I want to I'm, I end with that because I find it very interesting. I put that on my social network and everyone that clicked like, only two white, white males have clicked like. But if I talk about how this kid shooting was not self-defense, the usual suspects... I'm like, I am so glad you're here to defend the plight of the the oppressed. Um, yeah, sorry, sorry, who? Really because he don't care about me. He don't care about anybody but himself. I care. I don't. And I me, I'm the other way around. That he needs is a young person. That's but, but that's why I want you on the podcast. Therapy, baby. But, but that's why I want you on the podcast. You know why? Because you don't care about that kid. <laughs> I care about that kid. You don't care about that kid. And at the same I mean, time, I want him to get therapy yeah. maybe one day so that he's like not. You know, mm. a psychopath. Because I believe, I believe <laughs> everyone could. Only because I'm an educator on principle. No, of course. But, but. <laughs> That's it, but I don't really care. But this it. is why this is such a wonderful episode. We don't, we, I didn't put you on the episode so we could circle jerk. 
and agree with each other and talk about right why we agree and why it's a fucked up world and we should yeah, all go live in a, yeah. black people should all go live in a log cabin and build their own town and their own fruit store no just no this is dissension i am a patriot i'm a veteran of the united states army and i am a right. i am a, a god-fearing man not a church-going man anymore but a god-fearing man and i am a patriot what is the greatest form of patriotism rachel dissension protest <laughs> dissension yeah, questioning. There's a James Baldwin quote there, too. I don't identify as a patriot. Um, well, I'm not a nationalist, I, but, I, <laughs> but I'm a patriot. That's true. There, no, there, you're right. There is a difference. There is a difference. Mm-hmm. I often conflate the two. I will Admittedly, I will say that I often conflate the two, and I get a little nervous. Um, <laughs> but I understand. But since I know you and I know where you're coming from, that makes sense to me when I hear you say that. Um, but, uh, oh, shit. What the fuck was I going to say? <laughs> you better make it quick. We got, we got a minute and a half. <laughs> Oh yeah, there's a difference between nationalism. Yeah, and and, and um, oh, I don't remember what I was going to say. I forget. You were saying something. I don't know. But I also have a little quote to share. Please, Do it. Shakur. Do it. It is our duty to fight for our freedom. It is our duty to win. We must love each other and support each other. We have nothing to lose but our chains. Aches. That was uh, Tupac. You said or, Sh- or Shakur. Asada Shakur. Asada that Shakur. Was Tupac's aunt. Yeah. Good. That's a great way to end the podcast. That is a great, because, <laughs> no, listen, this is what. Wakanda forever. It's there worth, will be no battle today. Worth, worth fighting for. Yep. <laughs> he says, I, I believe the white wolf has slept long enough. <laughs> oh, all right. That's all I got for you. Listen, people. Yes. Rachel might Thank love you, so you but I had enough of you people. All right. For all of you at home, <laughs> for all of you on your iPad at Starbucks, for all of you on your desktop, who runs the world? Old school. Old school. For all of you on your Android. Droid. For Rachel Perez, I am Jason DeBiss. This is episode 53. And we say so long. We're out. Come check out the Option Podcast on OptionDB.com. It's also available on iTunes and Spotify and on YouTube under the NY Varsity Sports Handle. You're going to love what you hear.